peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. In months, Charlie was playing his music in bars in San Francisco's Tenderloin District and gathering a large and devoted group of followers. In his brief period of freedom, he lived with and associated with hundreds of different people, many of them prominent in the entertainment industry. He made numerous contacts in the music business, including Dennis Wilson, Neil Young and Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day and the former occupant, along with Candace Bergen, of the Cielo Drive home where the Tate murders occurred. Charlie even reportedly served as a religious consultant for Universal Studios on a movie about Christ, and also auditioned to be one of the monkeys. He was also deeply involved in a number of criminal enterprises, well before the consecutive bloodbaths that thrust him into the national limelight. As author Joel Norris has noted, Charlie was a drug dealer and contract killer, and had become involved in underworld crime, murder for higher rings, and child pornography. Interestingly enough, Manson has said that the family's most well-known victims were involved in some of the same enterprises, don't you think those people deserve to die? They were involved in kitty porn. Charlie had also, as previously noted, allied himself with various satanic cult groups that, as Norris notes, were heavily based on ritual bondage, sacrifice, and also murder. According to Ed Sanders, who interviewed numerous members and associates of the family, Manson was also involved in the production and distribution of snuff films. In the aftermath of the Tate and LaBianca killings, the LAPD, one of whose officers co-owned the auto shop that Charlie lived in just a few months before the murders, couldn't really be bothered with the wealth of evidence that implicated family members in the murders. The department also refused to acknowledge and examine the obvious connections between the two murder scenes, severely hampering the investigation. They likewise refused to explore the connections between the murder of musician Gary Hinman and the other two more high-profile crimes. The L.A. Sheriff's Department had already solved the Hinman case, no thanks to the LAPD, and had taken Bobby Beausoleil into custody just a few days before the Tate murders. The sheriffs knew of his connections to the family, and of the connections between the three crime scenes, two motorcycle gang members with close ties to the family, Al Springer and Danny DiCarlo of the Straight Satans, had given the sheriff's damning testimony concerning the family's involvement in all three murders. DiCarlo, who was reportedly a member of the Process Church, appears to have provided security for Charlie and the family. He kept a large arsenal of weapons at the family compound, including a 303 British Enfield rifle, a 22 rifle, a 20 gauge shotgun, a 30 caliber carbine, a 12 gauge riot gun, an M1 carbine, and a submachine gun. The family, it should be noted, did not operate as the hippie cult that they have been portrayed as being. 
Their base of operations was more of a paramilitary compound than it was a commune, complete with guard shacks at lookout points, telescopes, walkie-talkies, military field telephones, and converted dune buggies equipped with machine gun mounts. When the sheriffs passed along to the LAPD the information they had obtained from their informants, LA's finest proceeded to do absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, on September 1, 1969, just a few weeks after the Tate murders, a 22 caliber revolver was found in Sherman Oaks and turned in to the LAPD. The gun was a rather rare and unique firearm, and just happened to match the description of the weapon suspected of being used in the killings, right down to the broken handle that provided a perfect fit for the handle pieces that were recovered at the murder scene. Nevertheless, the department tagged and filed the weapon and it was promptly forgotten. For months, the department later sent out a flyer with a photo of the weapon, failing to realize that they already had the gun in their custody. It took a phone call from the father of the boy who had found the gun to get the department to acknowledge its existence, and even then, the caller was initially told that the gun had probably been destroyed. Elsewhere, family member Susan Atkins had been arrested on unrelated charges and was spending time in the Civil Brand Institute for Women. While there, she gave detailed confessions of the murders to at least two fellow inmates. She claimed that the family had already committed 11 murders, and many more were going to die. Both of these women tried to pass this information along to the LAPD, but both were repeatedly denied permission to do so. This was in spite of the fact that one of the female jailers to whom these requests were made was at the time dating one of the Tate case homicide detectives. One of the inmates later said, it was the hardest thing I've ever tried to do in my life, to get anyone to listen to me, it would appear then that the LAPD had, among other evidence, all of the following at its disposal, the eyewitness account of a participant in the crimes, the gun used in the crimes, and the statements of two close associates of the killers directly implicating them in the crimes. Yet they chose not to act on any of this for a period of several months. Though no serial killer, mass murderer in history has likely achieved the level of notoriety or generated the volume of media coverage that Charles Manson has, many of the most compelling facts of the Manson case remain largely unknown to the public. Of particular significance, perhaps, are the myriad levels on which the killers and the victims were connected. One of those connections was provided by none other than Anton Lavi. At least one of Charlie's girls, known locally as the Witches of Mendocino, was recruited from Lavi's Church of Satan. Susan, Sexy Sadie, Atkins was one of many dancers in Lavi's stable, collectively known as the Topless Witches Review. Atkins later credited Lavi with starting her down the road to murder. Family member Bobby Beausoleil, who was a roommate and, by some accounts, a lover of child star turned underground filmmaker Kenneth Anger, was also recruited from the Church of Satan. Interestingly enough, Lavi had connections to the victims as well. He had formed a close association with Roman Polanski shortly before the murders when he served as the technical consultant for Polanski on the film, Rosemary's Baby, in which he also made a cameo appearance as, who else, Satan. On the set of an earlier film, Tate herself had reportedly been initiated into witchcraft by Alexander Saunders. Sammy Davis Jr., who was introduced to the Church of Satan by Manson victim Jay Sebring, has said of the victims who were killed at Tate's Cielo Drive residence, everyone there had at one time or another been into Satanism. Some newspaper reports at the time of the slayings, denounced as sensationalism, were rife with reports that the Polanskis were Satanists who hosted drug and sex orgies. Indeed, just days before the murders a drug dealer was reportedly filmed being whipped at the house in an S&M ritual. Various celebrities were said to have been attendants. 
Actor Dennis Hopper spoke in interviews of sadistic movies filmed at the house that featured some of Hollywood's biggest names. Another connection was provided by the Esalen Institute, a New Age retreat in Monterey with ties to Crowley enthusiast Timothy Leary's like-minded Himalayan Academy. Manson had ties to both. He had in fact visited Esalen, where Robert de Grimston of the Process Church reportedly lectured occasionally, just a few days before the Tate killings. On the very day of the murders, someone from within the Polanski home placed a call to the Institute for reasons unknown. One of the victims, Abigail Folger, may have visited the retreat just a few days before Manson's visit. Author Robert Heinlein was also reportedly invited to lecture at Esalen. Heinlein, who, like Hubbard, first gained notice penning pieces for astounding science fiction, is probably best known as the author of the 1961 novel Stranger in a Strange Land. The book provided Manson with a Crowley-inspired script to follow, and it was one of the few books that Charlie allowed his disciples to read. Heinlein was a right-winger with strong authoritarian leanings who to this day, nevertheless, continues to be promoted by various voices in the progressive community. Another link between the principals in the case was provided by singer, Mama, Cass Elliott. Victims Wojtek Frakowski and Jay Sebring, who had a history of sadism, were both part of Cass's clique, as were Manson and some of his followers. Victim Abigail Folger may have been as well. Folger had also been friends for a time with Charles Manson himself, as well as with convicted Cotton Club killer Bill Menser. Four of the LAPD's top initial suspects in the Tate murder case were members of Cass Elliott's inner circle. They remained prime suspects for the first month of the investigation. One member of that circle was Pitt Dawson, the flamboyant son of a U.S. State Department official and an on-and-off boyfriend of Cass. Dawson had lived in the home of victims Frakowski and Folger in the summer before the killings while the ill-fated pair house sat for the Polanskis at the future crime scene, 10,050 Cielo Drive, later renumbered, appropriately enough, 10,066 Cielo Drive. Another connection between killers and victims was provided by their shared interest in drug trafficking. Several of the victims, including Wojtek Frakowski, Abigail Folger, and Sharon Tate herself, were linked to the trafficking of hallucinogens. Rosemary LaBianca was a known trafficker of methamphetamine, and likely other drugs as well. Frakowski had reportedly secured a deal just before the murders that would have made him the exclusive distributor of MDA in the LA area, his operations financed with coffee heiress Folger's considerable financial resources. Jay Sebring, who before the murders had once appeared in an underground movie that also featured Mansonite Bobby Beausoleil, appears to have been involved in the drug trade as well. A man named Joel Rostow is known to have delivered drugs to Sebring at the Cielo house just hours before the murders. Rostow was found murdered the next year in New York City. Another Sebring associate showed up dead just a month later in Florida. Immediately following the killings on Cielo Drive, Sebring's house was thoroughly cleaned by friends before police arrived to conduct a search. The Manson family was also heavily involved in drug dealing, including trafficking in LSD, hashish, marijuana and cocaine. Just a couple of days after the killings, Manson was seen driving a black Mercedes-Benz possibly owned by an underling of a man named Ronald Stark. Around that same time, Stark assumed the role of banker for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, a tax-exempt church that was formed by a motorcycle gang with close ties to Timothy Leary. The Brotherhood was led by a man named Farmer, John Griggs. At the same time as the Tate murders, Griggs allegedly overdosed on PCP at the group's ranch in Idlewild, California. A month earlier, a teenage friend of Leary's daughter had been found drowned at the ranch. 
The death of Griggs resulted in a massive shake-up at the organization that resulted in the shadowy Stark becoming the Brotherhood's sole banker and money manager. Under Stark's guiding hand, the Brotherhood became the largest known producer and distributor of LSD in the world, producing some 50 million doses. Stark was also closely linked to a parallel acid-producing operation in the UK dubbed the Microdot Gang, which likewise produced millions of hits of LSD in the early 1970s. While running his empire, Stark was known to have extensive contacts with American embassy personnel and to have frequent visitors from both the British and the American consulates. Were the Manson killings in reality part of what might be dubbed the Great Acid Coup of 1969? Were they the result of an operation aimed at, among other things, killing off some competitors, intimidating others, and consolidating control of the hallucinogenic drug market? The possibility clearly exists. Police originally were drawn to the theory that the killings were drug-related. Other early theories were that the killings were occult-inspired, or that the true motive could be found in what was dubbed fame porn. Films and videos found at the Polanski home suggested an elite Hollywood wife-swapping operation. The Folger-Frakowski home also yielded a box of erotic photos of Hollywood's elite. There were also indications of the involvement of organized crime in the killings. Leno LaBianca had known underworld connections to whom he reportedly owed nearly $250,000 in gambling debts. At the time of the murders, the LaBianca home, which I must add, perhaps gratuitously, was once owned by Walt Disney, was known to have its phone lines tapped. I could also add here, perhaps rather gratuitously as well, that Walt Disney was a direct descendant, on his mother's side, of George Burroughs, reportedly the Grand Wizard of the Witches executed in Salem in 1692. One mistaken impression that many people have about the Manson case is that the homes where the attacks took place were largely chosen at random. That was hardly the case. Manson was very familiar with the Polanski Tate home, which he had visited in the past. Manson knew both the owner of the Cielo Drive home, Rudy Altobelli, and the previous tenant, Terry Melcher, who along with Charlie was involved with the Process Church as was John Phillips, Cass Elliott's bandmate and another associate of Manson. Charlie was familiar with the LaBianca home as well, it was right next door to the home of Harold True, who had hosted LSD parties attended by Charlie and his followers before the murders. One particularly bizarre fact about the Tate killings that has gone largely unreported is that the crime scene appeared to have been rearranged after the killers had left. An attempt appeared to have been made to pose the victims' bodies on the home's front porch, after which the corpses were reposed inside the house. Evidence of tampering with the crime scene included an unidentified bloody boot heel print found on the front porch of the house and a number of unidentified fingerprints on the premises. Manson was ultimately arrested on charges unrelated to the murders on October 12, Alistair Crowley's birthday, following a raid on the family compound, and was only later charged in connection to the killings. Charlie had previously been arrested or charged on 40 or more occasions. One of those arrests, in 1967, was made by a narcotics team led by the LAPD's Frank Salerno. Salerno would later lead the task forces investigating both the Hillside Strangler murders and the Night Stalker killings. When the Manson case came to trial, there were the usual strange occurrences that seemed to plague serial killer trials. The lead defense attorney, Ronald Hughes, had just passed the bar and had yet to try a single case. He was, needless to say, a rather odd choice to spearhead the defense of one of the most vigorously prosecuted and high-profile murder cases of all time. Hughes soon went missing, and later turned up dead on the very day that death sentences were returned by the jury. 
Family member John Philip, zero, hot, not charged with playing a role in the murders, also turned up dead, allegedly after playing a game of Russian roulette. Another member of the family was whisked away to Patton State Hospital, which was reportedly deeply immersed in overt behavior modification experiments in the 1970s. Perhaps the most troubling aspect of the trial was that the defense team rested their case without bothering to actually present one. Courtroom viewers were stunned when not a single witness was called to rebut the prosecution's case, thereby virtually guaranteeing a win for Bugliosi and the state. Also of note is that then-President Richard Nixon declared Manson guilty on national television, nearly causing a mistrial, but ultimately greatly aiding the prosecution's efforts. When it was all over, Judge Oder pronounced death sentences for Charlie, Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins, and Leslie Van Houten. The sentences were delivered on, of all days, April 19, 1971. The year before, Bobby Beausoleil had become the first family member to receive a death sentence when the jury trying him returned the sentence in the Gary Hinman murder trial. The date was April 21, 1970. Perhaps in no other serial killer case has the subject of mind control played a more central role. That Charlie had a remarkable ability to control his followers is a well-established and widely acknowledged fact. Even more remarkable is that Manson has maintained much of that control from inside a prison cell for over 30 years now. In fact, the control that he had over his disciples was the primary basis for Manson's murder convictions. While it was Charlie's face that came to symbolize the killings, he did not personally participate in the Tate-LaBianca murders. According to the official version of events, he was not even present at the crime scenes when the murders took place, he merely suggested to his followers what they should do, and they obligingly followed his commands. In order to convict Manson then, it was necessary for the prosecution to convince the jury that the actual killers were virtually powerless to disobey their leader. For this reason, the Manson trial had no real precedent in American legal history. What the Manson case demonstrated was that it could be proven in a court of law that a person could be compelled to essentially act against his or her will. That had already been established in a Danish court in a landmark case recalled by Estabrooks in Hypnotism. An amateur hypnotist named Nielsen had induced an hypnotic subject named Hardrip to commit a murder. Nielsen, the hypnotist, got a life sentence, the maximum penalty in Denmark, whereas Hardrip, the actual murderer, received a two-year sentence on the basis of temporary insanity. The Manson case had a slightly different outcome. Manson, the hypnotist, received the death penalty, the maximum sentence in the state of California, and so too did the actual murderers. Legally and logically, that verdict made little sense. For if Manson's control was so complete that the killers were powerless to resist his commands, then they should not have been held legally accountable for their actions. And if Charlie did not wield such power, then he should not have been held responsible for the actions of others. Prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi did not address that inherent contradiction in his prosecution strategy in his widely read book, Helter Skelter. He did ponder, albeit briefly, how Manson gained such control over his subjects. He concluded that that remains the most puzzling question of all. Indeed, after spending just a few pages briefly summarizing some of the techniques Manson employed on his followers, Bugliosi surmised. I tend to think that there is something more, some missing link that enabled him to so rape and bastardize the minds of his followers that they would go against the most ingrained of all commandments, thou shalt not kill, and willingly, even eagerly, murder at his command. Charlie himself once gave an indication of how he controlled his flock, if you want to get to people and unlock their minds, the basic way you get to them is through fear. 
That was a concept that borrowed from the teachings of the Process Church. In a summer 1969 interview, Beach Boy Dennis Wilson spoke of getting the fear. In the same interview, he referred to Charlie as the wizard, while pondering the question of how Manson was able to exert such control, Bugliosi largely ignores a perhaps even more important question, where did Charlie learn the techniques that he was obviously so skilled at? Bugliosi notes only that it may be something that he learned from others, which, of course, is only stating the obvious. The question not asked, either in the book or at trial, is, who were these others? One possible answer can be found among the personnel at the Haight-Asbury Free Clinic in the late 1960s. Two employees of the clinic, Dr. Roger Smith, a research criminologist who had started the clinic's drug treatment program, and Dr. David Smith, who founded the clinic itself, were both involved in government-sponsored research on human behavior. Both had connections to Manson and his followers. In fact, Roger Smith was Charlie's parole officer. Another question never addressed by Bugliosi is how it was possible that a man of limited education, who had spent the majority of his life behind bars, somehow acquired those skills while U.S. intelligence agencies, after investing countless millions of dollars in decades of research aimed at attaining that very same goal, have allegedly met with nothing but failure. It defies explanation that men such as Manson, or Jim Jones, David Koresh, et al., have stumbled upon a secret that the CIA has yet to discover. It is a patently absurd notion, and yet that is exactly what we are supposed to believe. We are also supposed to believe that Charlie, while controlling the actions of others, was himself acting on his own free will. That is highly unlikely. If Charlie was in fact controlling the family, the logical question to be asked at trial was, who was controlling Manson? Was Manson himself a puppet, as well as a puppeteer? That question, naturally, was never raised and so remains largely unanswered to this day. Perhaps Bugliosi felt that question unimportant, given that, according to his book, the Manson case was, and remains, unique. Dr. Roger Smith saw things a little differently. In December 1969, he told Life magazine, there are a lot of Charlies running around, believe me. The story of Charles Manson is an endlessly fascinating one. It is also a story that is difficult to tell in a linear fashion, because Charlie and his victims were connected to so many people on so many different levels. For a nonlinear look at the Manson story, see http colon slash slash www Dave's web CNC host comp WTC 13 HTML relatively little has been written about the murder of Dr. Vincent Oda and his family on October 19, 1970, though the crime was no less sensational than the slaughter at the Polanski Tate residence the year before. There were two marked differences between the Santa Cruz crime scene and the Benedict Canyon crime scene. In Santa Cruz, none of the victims was a national celebrity and the job was done more professionally. In a spectacular home overlooking the bay, Drive Oda, his secretary, Dorothy Cadwallader, his wife, Virginia, and his sons, Derek and Taggart, were bound and blindfolded and then shot in the head from behind, execution style. They were then tossed into the home's pool, some of them while they were still alive. The house was then set afire in several locations, thus destroying the crime scene. The family's Rolls-Royce and Lincoln Continental were parked across the home's driveway entrances, denying access to the emergency vehicles that attempted to respond to the fires. A third car, a 1968 Oldsmobile station wagon, was missing. There was little in the way of crime scene evidence. The main portion of the house was completely gutted by the fires. The victims' bodies had been washed clean in the pool. 
A driving rain in the early morning hours had thoroughly washed away any footprints or other evidence that might have been left outside the home. Police initially said that they had found no scrawled messages and no evidence of burglary. When the missing Oldsmobile was found, torched and abandoned in a tunnel, it also failed to yield any evidence. Although there was little for police to work with, one thing seemed clear enough, these murders were not the work of a lone perpetrator. Some investigators, and much of the public, immediately suspected that another homicidal cult was at work. It seemed very unlikely that a sole assailant would have been able to bind all five victims, drag all their bodies out to the pool, start multiple fires, blockade the driveway, and then make a clean getaway. Two guns were used in the commission of the crimes, the 38 caliber weapon that killed Dr. Oda and the 22 caliber weapon that killed the others. A witness reported seeing three people in the vicinity of the abandoned Oldsmobile, and three sets of footprints were found leading from the tunnel to an adjacent river. Two people who fit the witness description were reportedly found in the search area, but there is no indication of what became of those potential suspects. For obvious reasons, a sheriff's spokesman announced at a press conference that police were seeking more than one perpetrator. A few days later, however, John Frazier was arrested and charged with being the sole perpetrator of the crimes. An initial report on the arrest falsely claimed that Frazier had waged a gun battle with police when he was actually taken into custody without incident. John Frazier had been placed in foster care at the age of five. He later ended up in a series of juvenile detention facilities. He was said to have a history of sleepwalking and horrifying nightmares. Despite his troubled upbringing, a friend described Frazier as having been a perfectly normal family man and competent mechanic, right up until the time that he suddenly changed his lifestyle dramatically and began speaking gibberish. On July 4, 1970, just three months before the murders, Frazier left his wife. At that time, he apparently took up residence in a shack, accessible via a drawbridge, on property near the Oda residence. While living there, he reportedly collected guns. Following his arrest, Frazier was assigned James Jackson, the chief assistant public defender of Santa Cruz County, as his defense counsel. Assisting Jackson was Harold Cartwright, a former U.S. Marine and police lieutenant working as Jackson's private investigator. Also brought on board by Jackson was Donald Lundy, a former Navy man and a professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University Medical School, not far from Santa Cruz. This team remained together to handle the Kemper and Mullen cases as well. Also on the same team, for all practical purposes, was Prosecutor Peter Chong. It is unclear whether these four men knew each other before the Fraser trial began, but in his book, Lundy makes it clear that he, Chong, Jackson and Cartwright were fast friends by trial's end, and frequently saw each other socially thereafter. This undoubtedly made it much easier to coordinate the shamelessly fraudulent Kemper and Mullen trials. On October 28, 1970, a grand jury indicted Frazier on five counts of murder. The defendant entered a plea of not guilty, which was later changed, on January 19, 1971, to not guilty by reason of insanity. A gag order was issued and the trial was moved to Redwood City, but the Santa Cruz team remained on the case. Helming the trial, which began in October 1971, was Judge Charles Franich. By late November, Frazier had been convicted on all five murder counts. It is unclear what evidence those convictions were based on. No murder weapon was ever found, so there was no ballistics evidence. There were no witnesses to the crime, and virtually all forensics evidence was destroyed by the fires and the rain. One witness reportedly identified Frazier as the driver of the abandoned Oldsmobile. 
It was claimed at one time by the DA's office that fingerprints had been recovered from a typewriter found in the incinerated home, but it was later acknowledged that that statement had not been accurate. It was also claimed, implausibly enough, that fingerprints were recovered from a beer confound in the home. Dr. Lundy seems to have played a key role in garnering the convictions when he testified for the defense, mind you, that Frazier had confessed the crimes to him during a psychiatric examination. Lundy also assured the court, he's crazy. John Frazier illustrated that point when he arrived for court during the penalty phase of the trial with half his head and face shaved clean. He was sentenced to death, but that sentence was later set aside by a 1976 Supreme Court decision. There are many questions left unanswered in the Oda Frazier case. Among them is the question of what Dorothy Cadwallader was doing at the Oda home. Cadwallader worked at Oda's office, not at his home, and she was not known to be a visitor to the residence. Press reports claimed that she was there to babysit, but Cadwallader's husband denied those reports. He had no explanation for why his wife was there that fateful day. Another lingering question concerns the typewritten note that a press release claimed was found under the windshield wiper of the Rolls-Royce, contradicting initial reports that there were no notes or messages found. Of course, a typewritten note fits in quite well with the claim of a fingerprint-laden typewriter. That typewriter, unfortunately, did not actually exist. The note, however, lives on. It read, in part, Halloween, 1970 Today World War III will begin as brought to you by the people of the free universe. Edmund Kemper III and Herbert Mullen, Santa Cruz's dueling serial killers, lived what were, in many respects, strangely parallel lives. Both were born the sons of World War II heroes, Kemper on December 18, 1948, and Mullen on April 18, 1947. Edmund Emil Kemper Jr. was a special forces operative whose specialty, according to his son, was suicide missions. Martin William Mullen served as a highly decorated captain in the Pacific. According to his son, Martin voluntarily committed himself to a mental hospital at the close of the war. Both of these men liked to regale their sons with graphic war stories. Young Herb was taught that violence is natural, and Ed's childhood home was filled with what Margaret Cheney described as mementos of battlefield gore and heroics. In their youth, both Herb and Ed received training in firearms from the National Rifle Association while at summer camp. Both would later be accused and convicted of killing with the cold precision of a professional assassin. Both were also labeled serial killers, though both were convicted of crimes that evidence suggests they did not commit, at least not alone. Both of their alleged killing sprees began in 1972 in Santa Cruz, California and both were arrested in early 1973. Following those arrests, the two were assigned adjoining jail cells, appointed the same defense attorney, examined by the same psychiatrist, and their cases were prosecuted by the same district attorney, at least until Chong bowed out of the Mullen case due to a medical emergency. Kemper and Mullen were both found guilty, both determined to be sane, and both were sent to California's Vacaville Medical Facility, which has been well documented as a hotbed of covert intelligence operations. Not long before their killing sprees began, both men spent a considerable amount of time in mental institutions, both voluntarily and involuntarily. In the two years leading up to the convictions of Kemper and Mullen, at least 74 men, women and children were killed in the state of California by released mental patients. Herb Mullen was, by all outward appearances, the quintessential all-American boy. He was a bright student, a talented athlete, and was popular enough to have been voted most likely to succeed by his graduating class at San Lorenzo Valley High School. 
But he was also known to consume large quantities of hallucinogenic drugs and he had legalized acid boldly tattooed across his stomach. On April 21, 1968, just three days after his 21st birthday, Mullen was arrested for possession of the substance referenced in another of Herb's tattoos, Eagle Eyes Marijuana. He cryptically wrote to his parents of that experience, that day the game started. For the crime of possessing marijuana, Herb was given probation and, on Halloween Day, committed to San Luis Obispo General Hospital. The personable young man, who was known to have a keen interest in astrology, numerology, reincarnation, magic and the occult, was institutionalized at least four more times over the next few years, including a voluntary commitment to Mendocino State Hospital near Ukiah. On July 30, 1970, Herb was again arrested on drug charges and ordered into the psychiatric ward of the county hospital. That same year, he met an older woman named Pat Brown at a Santa Cruz commune, and she soon thereafter convinced him to accompany her to Maui. Once there, Herb was once again committed to a mental hospital. According to Manson chronicler Ed Sanders, the hospital was run by the U.S. Army. Sanders also claimed, in a letter to famed conspiracy researcher May Brussel, that a mind control project in operation on the Hawaiian Islands at the time was specifically aimed at creating serial killers. While on Maui, Mullin, whose other tattoos read Mahashamadi, Kriya Yoga, and the word birth with two crosses, also spent time at the Krishna temple. Upon his return to the mainland, he was met at the airport by the son of a prominent local doctor, Richard Koch. Mullen reportedly revealed to him that he had received electroshock treatments while on Maui. On March 28, 1971, Mullen was again arrested, this time for being drunk in public and resisting an officer. He served 10 days in jail and then, in May, moved to San Francisco, where he remained for the next 16 months, although later he had only vague memories of that lengthy period. For the most part, he could not account for that entire one-and-a-half-year slice of his life. He lived in the city's Tenderloin District, where Charlie Manson had taken up residence just a few years earlier. Herb stayed in the company of young male hustlers in a series of seedy hotel rooms and, at times, in his car. Friends and acquaintances from that period of his life universally described him as sweet, tender, sensitive, and completely incapable of killing anyone. Strangely though, he also appears to have been a Golden Gloves boxer during that time. Throughout his adult life, Herb complained frequently of voices in his head, haunting his thoughts. He regularly told those around him that he was receiving messages, including commands to kill, that were delivered in his father's voice. Herb would later state, I feel that I was under my father's control, like a robot. Mullen was also known to tell people that his father, a mason, was a mass murderer responsible for countless unsolved killings up and down the California coast. During the largely blacked-out period that he spent in San Francisco, Herb engaged in what is known as backward writing, a hypnotically conditioned skill that is frequently indicative of mind control programming. Mullen was ultimately diagnosed as suffering from MPD, his alters were said to include a Mexican laborer, an Eastern philosopher, and, bizarrely enough, local columnist and unofficial Anton Lavi publicist Herb Kane. Herb returned from San Francisco to his parents' Santa Cruz home in September 1972, and allegedly began his killing spree just a few weeks later. He allegedly purchased a six-shot, 22 revolver from a gun shop on December 22, the winter solstice. Around that same time, the former conscientious objector inexplicably decided to enlist in the U.S. Marines. 
On January 15th, he passed both the physical and mental entrance examinations, a rather remarkable feat considering that at the time he was just a few weeks away from being arrested and charged as a serial killer. He also had a criminal record, which his recruiter opted to waive. Erb's arrest preempted his military plans. Once in custody, he was interrogated by police, throughout which he robotically chanted the single word, silence, to virtually all questions posed to him, as if repeating an instruction that had been programmed into his brain. He later claimed that, once incarcerated, he began receiving telepathic messages instructing him to kill himself, but he was able to resist acting on those orders. Had Mullen elected to commit suicide, the state surely would have breathed a sigh of relief. After all, they would have been spared the burden of staging a blatantly fraudulent trial. From the moment of Erb's arrest, there were clear indications that he was being railroaded by the very same team, as noted previously, that sent John Frazier to death row. There were also clear signs from early on that Mullen may not have been responsible for many of the crimes for which he was charged, most of which looked for all the world like contract hits. The killing of Father Tamai, for example, was very likely a professional hit. Tamai, who was raised in an orphanage during World War I, was internationally known both as a hero of the French resistance during World War II and for having organized a chorus for troubled youth made up primarily of boys from abusive homes. This chorus toured internationally, which, though it is merely speculation, would have provided an ideal front for an underage male prostitution racket. An eyewitness to the slaying of Tamai described his assailant as young, white, six feet tall, and wearing a black leather jacket. Herb was only 5 feet 7 inches tall and never owned a black leather jacket. Although he certainly could have borrowed the jacket, the 5 inch height discrepancy is a little harder to explain. Mullen did have a connection to Tamai, Herb's second cousin, Monsignor Edwin Kennedy, was a close friend of the slain priest. Mullen may or may not have been responsible for the nearly simultaneous mass murders at the homes of Jim Gianera and Bob Francis. One witness described the possible assailant as being short and of medium build, which accurately described Herb. But the witness also stated that he thought the man was Mexican, which Mullen definitely was not, although, as previously mentioned, one of his alter egos was. One thing that is known for sure is that Herb knew the victims quite well, which illustrates yet another flaw in the public's perception of the nature of serial crime. In fact, a number of the killers profiled herein knew at least some of their victims, and sometimes knew them quite well. Another thing that is quite clear is that the Gianera and Francis families were not randomly selected victims. Rather, they were almost certainly the targets of professional hits. Both Francis and Gianera were known drug dealers, as were Gianera's two brothers. And word on the street at the time of the killings was that Jim and Bob were snitches. It is, therefore, extremely unlikely that the simultaneous assaults on their two homes were random acts of violence. Bob Francis was not at home at the time of the killings, but his wife and two young sons were summarily and quite professionally executed with a 22 round to the head. One of those sons, Herb's youngest alleged victim at just four years old, was named Demon, which is a nice name to give to your kid if your name happens to be, say, Lucifer. At the Gianera home, both Jim and his wife Joan were killed with multiple gunshot and stab wounds. Strangely, both Jim and Joan's families arrived at the crime scene before the police were notified. The house looked as though it had been thoroughly searched, though whether by the killers or by the victims' families is unclear. Police later found two, 22 casings in Bob Francis's car, though that is obviously far from being conclusive evidence of guilt. 
Another mass murder attributed to Mullen, the slaughter of four teenage campers, appeared to have been the work of multiple perpetrators, unless, that is, one chooses to believe that one man wielding a six-shot revolver can overpower four healthy young men armed with a rifle. This crime also looked very much like a professional job. All four victims were coldly and methodically dispatched with a single small-caliber shot to the head from point-blank range. Evidence at the scene suggested that there had definitely been a struggle, yet the boy's loaded and unfired rifle was found still lying within easy reach of where the teen's bodies lay dead. The final murder attributed to Herb was the sniper shooting of a retired boxer who was felled with a single shot to the chest from 100 feet away, in what appeared to be yet another professional hit. Just days later, Prosecutor Chong filed six murder counts against Mullen, even though three witnesses were unable to pick him out of a police lineup. Eight days later, four more murder counts were added and a sweeping gag order was issued barring any public statements on the case from anyone involved. On March 1st, Mullen appeared before a judge, accompanied by Attorney Jackson, and shocked the courtroom by entering a nolo contendere plea and a request to represent himself. When the judge rejected both the plea and the request, Herb immediately offered up a guilty plea. The judge, however, insisted on going through with the mockery of a trial. Dispensing with a preliminary hearing, the case was instead sent to a grand jury, which issued indictments on all ten murder counts on March 14th. The transcript of those proceedings, naturally enough, was sealed by the judge. Mullen's defense counsel, Jackson, got things rolling by introducing a number of pre-trial motions that rather shamelessly sold his client out. Jackson told the court that there was no reason to change the venue of the trial, despite a massive amount of pre-trial publicity demonizing Mullen, and despite the unprecedented climate of fear in Santa Cruz engendered by the alleged actions of Kemper, Frazier, Mullen, et al. He also made an unprecedented request that jury questioning, known as voir dire, be conducted in the judge's chambers. The request was granted and the jury was, without precedent, selected away from the eyes of the press and public. As California law requires that a defendant pleading, not guilty by reason of insanity, also maintain their factual innocence, two trials are generally required to dispose of such a case, one to determine factual guilt, and the second to determine sanity, and therefore legal guilt. In a most remarkable move, however, Jackson agreed with the prosecutor and the judge that the two should be combined into one, since it was universally claimed that there was no question about factual guilt. The trial, in other words, began with the presumption of guilt as its starting point, completely doing away with the notion that, in the American criminal justice system, all defendants are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. When the trial began on July 30, 1973, the judge opened the proceedings by explaining to the secretly selected jurors the five possible verdicts they were to consider, guilty of first-degree murder, guilty of second-degree murder, guilty of voluntary manslaughter, guilty of involuntary manslaughter, or not guilty by reason of insanity. Notably absent from that list, from the very beginning of the trial, was not guilty. Not to be outdone, defense counsel Jackson began his opening statement by declaring, Friday the 13th, October 1972, Herbert William Mullen took a baseball bat and clubbed one Lawrence White to death. Not only had he declared his client guilty of murder, he had implicated him in a crime he had never even been charged with. Jackson's opening act also included this little gem, we do not, as you know, intend to argue the proposition that Herb did not commit these killings. He did not, in other words, intend to actually defend his client. 
With Mullen's guilt having been predetermined, albeit with no actual physical evidence to support that conclusion, the state presented its case in just four days, with the facts established rather perfunctorily and without a hint of any objections from the defense table. The defense team, in fact, did not bother to challenge any of the supposed facts of the case, which would not have withstood any sort of scrutiny. Truth be told, the state need not have presented a case at all, the defense did a fine job of establishing Mullen's guilt. Playing a central role in that charade was Dr. Donald Lundy, who took the stand and proceeded to reveal what was purportedly Herb's own account of the murders, which the doctor claimed that Mullen had confessed to both he and Cartwright. Not long into this testimony, Herb objected and requested that Jackson promptly terminate his questioning of Lundy, which was obviously eliciting testimony that was damaging to Herb's case. Mullen noted of Lundy's testimony, different aspects and different facets of the story which I related are being portrayed completely false as to how I made them. He also informed the judge that, in conference, that Lundy and Jackson explained that they would portray the reasons for my derangement. The judge, needless to say, declined to halt Lundy's testimony, which was essential for establishing Mullen's alleged guilt, which is why, I suppose, the testimony was being solicited by the defense team. Herb voiced numerous other complaints during his trial and frequently questioned the competence and integrity of his appointed defenders, noting at one point the fact that Jackson, his lead attorney, refused to communicate with him in writing. Herb also strenuously objected to the misuse by Lundy of videotapes that the doctor had made of Herb's supposed confessions. Mullen even went so far as to state, rather bluntly, that he was the victim of a huge conspiracy. Despite his deep mistrust of Lundy, the doctor was nevertheless able to convince Mullen to take the stand in his own defense, which any first-year law student knows almost never benefits anyone other than the prosecution. While on the stand, Herb was asked directly by Jackson to explain why he had killed 13 people, to which he responded, All right. First of all, you have heard me say before that I am a scapegoat, sort of an outcast who has been made to become a scapegoat. That was not, it seems safe to say, the response that Jackson had hoped to elicit. On August 19, 1973, the jury returned with guilty verdicts on all ten murder counts. The failure of the pitiful attempt at an insanity defense was due in no small part to a statement from Lundy to the jury, as a practical matter, whether somebody is dangerous or not, there is no place to put him. The message was quite clear, finding Mullen to be insane would essentially mean setting him free. The jury had essentially been instructed to find Herb guilty, and it did just that. He was sentenced to life in prison and promptly shipped off to Vacaville, before ultimately landing in San Quentin. Over the years, he was periodically shipped back to Vacaville, perhaps in need of a tune-up. To fully understand the depths of Lundy's cravenness, one need look no further than the doctor's own words, written in his self-serving book on the case, I had learned years earlier that the best course after a psychiatric interview of a criminal defendant is for me to return to my office, immediately dictate a summary of my notes, and destroy the originals. That is, needless to say, a course of action to be taken only when one feels the need to cover something up, and a course of action that should have disqualified Lundy as a credible witness in the case. The final words on the Mullen case were written by Kenneth Springer, the jury foreman, who wrote to then-Governor of California Ronald Reagan, I hold the state executive and state legislative offices as responsible for these ten lives as I do the defendant himself, none of this need ever have happened. Springer probably had no idea how true those words really were, nor did he likely know that the very same words could be as accurately applied to the case of Edmund Kemper. 
When Ed Kemper was just a toddler, his father headed off for the Pacific, where he spent two years working on the U.S. atomic bomb testing program, as did the father of the so-called Sunset Strip Killer, but we'll get to that later. Though it appears that efforts have been made to whitewash Kemper's childhood, there are clear indications that it was a horrifyingly abusive one. At one point in his young life, Ed was made to live in a dank, dark basement for eight consecutive months, the only access to which was through a trapdoor hidden beneath a kitchen table. From the age of eight, Ed engaged in an incestuous relationship with an older sister. At ten, he killed and beheaded his first cat, planted the severed head on a spindle and thereafter prayed over it. According to chronicler Margaret Cheney, he was prone to zombie-like fits of staring, which is another way of saying that he had a strong tendency to dissociate. At the tender age of 15, Kemper summarily executed both of his grandparents with single 22 caliber rounds to the backs of their heads. He was judged insane and, on December 6, 1964, was remanded by the California Youth Authority to Atascadero State Hospital, an enormous facility filled with convicted rapists, child molesters and other violent sex offenders. Kemper remained at Atascadero for five years. On staff there, near the end of his confinement, was none other than Dr. Donald Lundy. It is indeed a small world. Remanded back to the CYA as cured, Kemper was paroled three months later to his mother's care. Not long after, Ed began work on a particularly brutal string of murders, while at the very same time he successfully petitioned to have his juvenile record sealed. In pursuit of that latter goal, he reportedly once drove to Fresno for a required psychiatric exam with a freshly severed head in the trunk of his car. Kemper spent a considerable amount of his free time hanging out at a bar called the Jury Room, which served as a watering hole for local cops, sheriffs and prosecuting attorneys. Kemper was quite well known there, where he was affectionately known as Big Ed, even by the regulars who were aware of his colorful history. This theme of alleged serial killers maintaining close ties with various law enforcement agencies and personnel is one that will be revisited frequently in this book. In fact, many of the men profiled herein, including Ed Kemper, aspired to careers in law enforcement themselves. By April 1973, Kemper had been charged with savagely murdering six female hitchhikers between May 1972 and February 1973. He followed those killings up with his swan song, bludgeoning his own mother to death, beheading her, raping her headless corpse, and then, according to some reports, using her severed head as a dartboard. Ed then called to invite his mother's friend over to the house that he shared with his mom and, upon her arrival, quickly dealt with her in a similar manner. This double murder occurred, strangely enough, on April 21, 1973, exactly five years to the day from the date on which Herb Mullen had noted that the game had begun. Kemper quickly fled the state, ending up in Pueblo, Colorado after a making a stop at the University of Nevada campus for reasons unknown. On April 23, Big Ed called some of his drinking buddies at the Santa Cruz Police Department and promptly began confessing his crimes. Pueblo police arrested him as he stood at a public payphone, talking to the Santa Cruz officers. In his nearby car were three guns and 200 rounds of ammunition. He had apparently left some of his arsenal at home. His sister claimed that Ed owned at least six guns, including a 22 Ruger pistol, which is the one that he allegedly used to inflict the fatal head wounds that killed many of his victims. Why Ed chose to turn himself in and give up without a fight, after making his roundabout escape equipped with a mini-arsenal, remains a mystery. Though there is no question that Kemper was involved in the killings, he did, after all, document his handiwork with Polaroids, there is evidence to suggest that others may have been involved as well. 
an eyewitness to the abduction of one victim, for instance, described a fairly tall male Caucasian driving a cream or tan-colored sedan. Kemper's car was bright yellow, and he was hardly what would be considered fairly tall. Kemper, in fact, was known as Big Ed for good reason. He was a giant of a man, standing 6 feet 9 inches tall and weighing in at 280 pounds. It would have been nearly impossible for any potential eyewitnesses not to notice his imposing stature. One particularly bizarre aspect of the crimes attributed to Ed Kemper and Herb Mullen is that the body of one of Ed's alleged victims and the body of one of Herb's alleged victims were found buried in the virtually the same isolated, remote location. As Kemper himself noted, the body of his victim was discovered amazingly close to where the girl from Cabrillo was found up there, stabbed. Kemper's trial was a largely pointless affair that featured the very same cast of characters that had starred in the Frazier and Mullen trials. No one in the courtroom ever questioned whether Ed was factually guilty of the crimes, or whether he had acted alone. After all, he had given what Cheney described as one of the most detailed, articulate, and chilling confessions of sadism, murder, mutilation, cannibalism, and necrophilia in the annals of crime. He had also taken the time to document his barbarity with a large collection of snuff photos. What the confessions and photos revealed was a series of unbelievably sadistic crimes that were laced with occult symbolism. This had led some avenues of the media to theorize, prior to Ed's arrest, that the yet-to-be-identified killer was a member of a devil-worshipping cult. Just as Mullen had unwisely chosen to take the stand in his own defense, so too did Kemper. He testified that the killings arose from fantasies that began to build in his head during his confinement at Atascadero. Attorney Jackson elaborated, adding that Ed had told California Youth Authority officials of evil forces within him which tried to control his behavior. Incidentally, John Frazier, like Kemper, had spent time with the CYA, he also claimed, like Mullen, to hear voices in his head. The phenomenon of hearing voices, though considered by psychiatrists to be auditory hallucinations indicative of delusional thought processes, is actually a quite logical manifestation of both multiple personality disorder and mind control programming, the two frequently going hand in hand. Many researchers have put forth the idea that the hearing of such voices, and particularly the receiving of specific commands, is a result of various high-tech forms of electromagnetic mind control, such as intercerebral implants. However, while such technology no doubt exists, it really is not necessary to explain the phenomenon of hearing voices, a phenomenon that long predates the development of any technological means to produce it. In all probability, what the voices represent are the various alter personalities of a person with a severe dissociative disorder communicating with that person's core personality, which has no conscious awareness of the alters and so experiences their voices as disembodied voices in the head. The voices, in other words, are essentially a one-way internal conversation between different personalities inhabiting the same body. In a sense then, the voices are not a delusion at all, for the afflicted person is not imagining that someone is talking to him, someone is talking to him. The problem is that the person is unaware that the person talking to him is actually within him. He is, in a very real sense, talking to himself. Ed Kemper was probably familiar with the notion of voices in the head. As he once said, I believe that there are two people inside me. He also described experiencing a dissociative state while going about his grisly work. It's almost like a blacking out. You know what you're doing, but you don't notice anything else around. Ed was judged sane and guilty of eight counts of first-degree murder, giving him a career total of ten homicide convictions, just like Herb Mullen. He was sentenced to life in prison and sent to Vacaville, then later transferred to Folsom. 
It seems somehow redundant to review the case of the so-called vampire of Sacramento, Richard Chase, given that his story closely parallels that of Herb Mullen. Nevertheless, a brief review is in order. Chase was born into a household where interfamilial violence was the order of the day. His parents reportedly fought constantly, and his father was euphemistically described as a strict disciplinarian. By the age of 18, Richard was receiving regular psychiatric care. In the late 1960s, Chase was twice arrested for possession of marijuana, the same charge that first brought Mullen into the orbit of the criminal justice system. Richard was also a suspect in a 1968 shooting, although he was never charged with the crime. In 1973, he was arrested for carrying a concealed weapon and, on December 1st, he was admitted into the American River Hospital by order of the court, but was discharged not long after into the care of his mother. As Herb had done with his father, Richard took to accusing his mother of controlling his mind. Chase also began claiming in the mid-70s that he was receiving telepathic messages. He was known to hold conversations with people nobody else could see. And like Mullen, Chase reportedly had a healthy appetite for hallucinogenic drugs. His mother later claimed that her son's problems were due to him being the victim of LSD abuse. Richard was again arrested in 1976 and, on April 28, just two days shy of Walpurgisnacht, was again admitted to American River Hospital. In June of that same year, his mother was granted a one-year conservatorship of the troubled young man. He was then transferred to Beverly Manor, where he became known to staff and fellow inmates as Dracula. In September 1976, he was released. In June or July of the following year, Richard Chase made a very odd solo journey to Washington, D.C., for reasons unknown. He never explained to anyone, before or after the trip, the reason for his abrupt and unexpected sojourn. Immediately after that, on August 3, 1977, Chase was arrested at California's Pyramid Lake. Two loaded and bloodstained rifles were on the seat of his truck, along with Richard's bloodstained clothes and shoes. Also in the vehicle was a large bucket of blood in which was floating a fresh liver, later claimed to be from a cow. Chase, naked, dripping with fresh blood, and with dried blood caked in his hair, whiskers and ears, fled from the officers upon their approach. He was apprehended, arrested and charged with federal gun law violations. In a rather unlikely turn of events, all the charges were subsequently dropped. Less than five months later, Chase's alleged killing spree began, just after he purchased a 22 semi-automatic handgun in early December 1977, just as Mullen had done in December 1972. On December 29, an engineer with the Federal Bureau of Land Management was picked off by a sniper in a car wielding a 22 caliber weapon, precisely mirroring one of the crimes attributed to Herb Mullen. Not quite a month after that, Teresa Wallen was killed with two contact wounds to the head from a 22, one pumped into her left temple. The slugs recovered from her head were said to be similar to the one that killed engineer Ambrose Griffin, which is not saying much since any 22 slug would be similar to the one that killed Griffin. Teresa Wallen was carved up and left on display. She was ripped open from her neck to her groin, with her sternum and breastplate split open. Some of her organs were removed and her left nipple was sliced off. She was then posed in the master bedroom on her back, with her splayed legs facing the hallway. Her corpse was found to contain a three-month-old fetus. Just four days later, in a scene reminiscent of the Oda House after John Fraser's alleged visit, or the Francis home after Herb Mullen's alleged visit, Evelyn Maroth was found dead in her home, the victim of a... 22 round fired above her left ear at very close range. 
A man described as a friend, Danny Meredith, caught two slugs to the head, one between the eyes and another next to his left ear. Young Jason Muroth, Evelyn's son, was shot above the left ear and in the back of the head. Missing from the home was 22-month-old David Ferreira, Evelyn's nephew. He was also shot in the head, though his body was not discovered until much later. Evelyn Muroth was also brutally mutilated after her death, as was young David Ferreira. Muroth was found nude, ripped open and with her legs splayed. Two household knives lay near her body. Her right eye had been partially removed and there were multiple cuts and stab wounds about her neck. She had been split down the middle, with a second cut across her abdomen intersecting the first gaping wound, thereby forming an inverted cross on her corpse, as was the case also with Mullen's alleged ripper victim, whose body was discarded nearly alongside of one of Kemper's alleged victims. Another cut ran up the back of Evelyn Moroff's buttocks, tests revealed that semen was present in the wound. This semen was never matched to that of her alleged killer. The bathroom of the home was a gruesome sight, with blood all over the floor and bloody water left standing in the bathtub, indicating that Moroth was probably butchered there before being posed elsewhere. Mirroring the situation five years earlier in Santa Cruz, the homicide rate in Sacramento soared during Chase's alleged murder spree. In the 29 days between his first and last killings, no fewer than 14 largely unexplained murders plagued the capital city. Included among the dead were a baby girl killed by her father and a baby boy killed by his mother. Both of these infanticidal parents drew three-year sentences, illustrating once again the appalling job done by the criminal justice system in protecting the most vulnerable of Americans. On January 28, just one day after the Maroth bloodbath, Richard Chase was arrested by a three-man team of detectives that had been working the case. Despite the fact that these were arguably the most sensational crimes in the city's history, the three were all rookies whose combined experience working homicide cases totaled just six months. Its homicide detectives had opted to bring in a team of newcomers to handle the investigation. At the time of his arrest, Chase believed that he was under investigation not for murder, but for killing dogs, which he apparently was in the habit of doing. The detectives quickly made clear that Richard was being charged with multiple counts of murder, which he repeatedly denied knowing anything about. He readily admitted though to killing the dogs, whose blood covered virtually everything in his apartment, including his handwritten notebook that reportedly featured drawings of swastikas. Chase was grilled relentlessly by detectives, who showed him photographs and filled him in on the details of the crimes they claimed he was guilty of committing. Steadfastly though, Chase maintained his innocence, at one point saying, I just, I don't know. I don't understand how it could be me. Eventually two other detectives took over the questioning of Chase, showing him yet more graphic crime scene photos and hurling yet more accusations at him. Nevertheless, Richard continued to steadfastly deny any involvement in the murders and the detectives ultimately gave up and sent him to a cell. Once there, amazingly enough, Chase promptly confessed the murders to a trustee inmate. That is, at any rate, the way the official story reads. To say that the case against Chase was weak would be a serious understatement. No forensics evidence placed him at, or even anywhere near any of the crime scenes, not one drop of blood, not one strand of hair, not a single fingerprint. No witnesses could place him at any of the scenes and no ballistics evidence linked him to any of the killings. The only evidence recovered at the Wallen crime scene consisted of latex glove prints and fresh shoe prints on the kitchen floor. The latter, oddly enough, were not noticed until hours after technicians began searching the home, and hours after investigators had been freely trampling over the alleged evidence. 
One detail of the crime scene strongly indicated that the killer was not Chase, but rather someone known to Teresa, her ever-vigilant German shepherd, Brutus, was in the house at the time of the killing. Two sisters of David Wallin, Teresa's husband, who discovered the body, suspected one of David's former significant others, who claimed to possess psychic powers and who had bragged to the two women that she was in a devil cult. One such cult that was active in the area, strangely enough, was the Manson family, who had relocated to the area to be near their leader's new home in a California prison cell. Indeed, the family's Lynette, Squeaky, Fromm had been arrested just two years before, in 1975, in the city's Capitol Park following a failed assassination attempt on then-President Gerald Ford. At the Maroth crime scene, all that was left behind by the killer was again shoe prints, this time in the outside soil, and latex glove prints. A cigarette butt that may or may not have been left by an assailant was found on the porch. There is no indication that saliva on that butt was ever matched to Chase. Richard's car was apparently parked nearby, adjacent to the country club center, a fact that prosecutors pointed to as an indication of guilt. If so, Chase had parked the car rather inappropriately for use as an intended getaway car, it was quite conspicuously parked in a clearly marked no parking zone. And oddly enough, the car was not actually used, the Meredith car was driven away from the home by the killers. It appeared as though Chase's car had been deliberately left, by someone, in such a way that it would not fail to be noticed, and in a location that would establish Richard's presence near the crime. There is a distinct possibility that whoever killed the inhabitants of the Maroth home arrived in the Meredith car as well as leaving in it, which would mean that the killer almost certainly knew the victims. Neighbors across the street, who were keeping a fairly close eye on the house, saw no one enter or leave the Maroth home, saw no other cars arrive, and neither saw nor heard any signs of a struggle. Perhaps the clearest indication that Chase did not act alone in committing the crime, if indeed he was involved at all, is that the tiny body of David Ferreira was found adjacent to a church nearly two months after Richard had been arrested. The discovery was made when a gate that was normally kept locked was found to be unlocked and left ajar. There in a box lay Ferreira's remains, stabbed, slashed, shot and beheaded. Also in the box were the child's clothes and Danny Meredith's car keys. According to prosecutors, the body had been decomposing there since before Chase's arrest. Common sense and the circumstances of its discovery suggest otherwise. When Chase's trial began on January 2, 1979, Richard stood before the court looking very much like a concentration camp inmate. Already a thin man, the 5 feet 11 inches Chase's weight had dropped to a nearly skeletal 107 pounds. He sat emotionless at the defense table, his mind seemingly miles away. As recounted by Lieutenant Ray Biondi, who headed the investigation and co-authored a self-congratulatory book on the case, the most damning pieces of evidence presented in support of the state's case were two items that Chase allegedly had in his possession at the time of his arrest, a 22 caliber handgun and Danny Meredith's wallet. The 22 though could not be matched to any of the slugs recovered from the victims, and the possibility certainly exists that the wallet was planted or was acquired by Chase after the murders. As it turned out, the strongest card in the state's hand was Chase himself, who took the stand in his own defense, just as Herb had done. Despite having entered pleas of not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity, Chase proceeded to give a long and rambling confession on the stand, during which he freely and accurately used psychiatric and legal jargon, according to Biondi. What he could not do, however, was accurately recall many of the details of the crimes. Chase's defense counsel greatly aided the prosecution's efforts by asking the jury to return second-degree murder convictions against his client. 
Echoing the immortal words of James Jackson, he stated, First just feel that to tell you that there is something less than murder here is not a reasonable way to argue to you. On May 8, 1979, after just five hours of deliberations, the jury returned with six first-degree murder convictions. Six days later, after just 65 minutes of deliberations, they found the defendant sane. Four more hours of deliberations produced death sentences after Chase once again took the stand during the penalty phase of the trial. Richard Chase never made his appointment with the executioner. On December 26, 1980, he was found dead in his cell from the toxic ingestion of an enormous quantity of antipsychotic drugs. His death was ruled a suicide. He allegedly had hoarded his daily medicine until he accumulated a lethal dose. His daily medication packet for that day, however, was found untouched. Not long before his premature death, Chase spent four months incarcerated at, where else, Vacaville. Chapter 14, Superstars. W.E. locate a number of good hypnotic subjects among the criminal class. We then isolate and train these subjects, if allowed a free hand, the authorities could proceed to plan such prepared subjects from the criminal class where it would do the most good. George Estabrooks in Hypnotism As the mid-1970s rolled around, the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit came of age, the science of criminal profiling was thrust upon the American people, the term, serial killer, entered the national lexicon, and the marauding mass murderer suddenly became the new American anti-hero. As soon as there was a name for this new and feared breed of criminal, the country bore witness to the media giving saturation coverage to the alleged exploits of these individuals, creating larger-than-life figures out of the likes of Henry Lee Lucas, David, son of Sam, Berkowitz, Theodore Robert Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, and Angelo Buono and Kenneth Bianchi, collectively known as the Hillside Stranglers. Henry Lee Lucas, already discussed in previous chapters, had the longest reign of any of the serial killer superstars, spanning from 1975 to 1983. The alleged son of Sam had a much shorter though quite spectacular reign just a year into Henry's killing spree. That string of execution-style shootings has been far more thoroughly examined in Maury Terry's The Ultimate Evil than would be possible here. Interested readers are advised to pick up a copy of Terry's book, a thorough reading of which will facilitate a better understanding of this book. The 12 victims attributed to the Hillside Stranglers were killed between October 17, 1977 and February 17, 1978, closely mirroring the alleged murder spree of Herb Mullen, whose 13 alleged victims were killed during almost the exact same span of time just five years earlier, October 13, 1972 to February 13, 1973. The last killing attributed to Ted Bundy occurred just eight days before the last hillside strangling, on February 9, 1978. Bundy had been killing for four years or more, according to varying accounts. John Geisha's reign also ended in 1978, and he too had been killing for about four years, longer by some accounts. There were a number of parallels between the cases of these high-profile killers. Kenneth Bianchi, like Charles Manson, was born the son of an alcoholic, teenage prostitute, his alleged partner, Sicilian-bred Angelo Buono, was also born the son of a prostitute. Like Lucas, Buono spoke of being taken along by his mother while she serviced her tricks. According to some accounts, Ted Bundy's mother was an abusive young prostitute as well, who also plied her trade in the presence of her young son. Bianchi, Bundy and Gacy all had an intense interest in law enforcement work. Bianchi, for example, studied police science in college, went on ride-alongs with the LAPD, joined the sheriff's reserves, and was known to carry a California Highway Patrol badge. 
Gacy was described by his wife as a police freak, a description that was applied to him by others as well. From an early age, Ted Bundy also expressed a strong interest in pursuing a law enforcement career, and at various times worked for the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee, the King County Law and Justice Planning Office, the Seattle Crime Commission, and as a self-employed law enforcement consultant, billing himself as TRB Associates. Another common thread that ties the cases of these men together is an early experience in the workforce that exposed them to the depravities that one human can inflict upon another. Kenneth Bianchi, for example, worked for a time as an ambulance attendant. So did John Wayne Gacy, who also was employed at a mortuary. Such an experience is what the intelligence community refers to as a blooding. In a similar vein, the entire country is being blooded, though on a lesser level, through near-constant exposure to a television and video game diet increasingly dominated by scenes of graphic violence. The effect of this is to radically desensitize individuals, or an entire society, to appalling levels of bloodshed and carnage. Another commonality among some of the more high-profile serial killers profiled in this chapter and others are seemingly improbable connections to very high-ranking members of their respective political parties. Gacy, for example, was a fixture in Chicago Democratic Party circles. Despite his colorful and at times criminal past, he had a high enough security clearance to have once had a face-to-face -face meeting with then-First Lady Rosalind Carter. Ted Bundy was equally well-connected to various Republican Party officials. As a final note here, before taking a closer look at the stories of these men, it should be noted that the era in which their crimes were committed was a time when reported cases of multiple personality disorder skyrocketed. Before the decade of the 1970s was over, twice as many cases had been reported in that 10-year span as in the previous 100 years. There are indications that all of these alleged killers suffered, to varying degrees, from a dissociative disorder. Bianchi was diagnosed as such by a number of therapists, though this diagnosis was disputed by others, including the CIA's own Martin Orne and Margaret Singer. Though never formally diagnosed, Ted Bundy displayed unmistakable signs of a dissociative disorder as well. Not only could Bundy's personality change at a moment's notice, but his physical appearance could as well. Bundy had a chameleon-like ability to alter his appearance, an ability that is clearly displayed in the numerous photos of him that grace the pages of the various books he has inspired. A neighbor of his in Florida once offered this observation, he always looked different, I don't know, sometimes he just didn't even look like the same person at all. Diana Smith, a therapist and Bundy family friend, wondered how Ted could be so many different things to so many different people. An investigator on the Bundy case, Joe Alloy, claimed that he once observed Bundy react to a particularly stressful situation by spontaneously, and quite radically, altering his physical appearance. Ted's body and muscle tone changed markedly, and he suddenly became sweaty and began emitting a noticeable odor. The judge who presided over Ted's Colorado trial referred to him as a changeling, noting the unsettling way in which his appearance could change dramatically with his mood. The judge drew a comparison to Vincent Bugliosi's description of Charles Manson's similar ability. Bugliosi was not the only one to make that observation about Manson. Disciple Susan Atkins once said, Charlie changes from second to second. He can be anybody he wants to be. He can put on any face he wants to put on at any given moment. Although John Wayne Gacy did not have the ability to alter his physical appearance, as Detective David Hackmeister of the Des Plaines Police observed, his personality could change in a split second. 
Gacy was viewed by many as a pillar of the community, a man who was politically active and well-connected, who gave of his time freely to entertain children, who was a valued neighbor who regularly hosted parties with hundreds of guests, and who was a successful businessman and a loving father. On the other hand, he also had the unique distinction of being convicted of 33 counts of first-degree murder. How are we to reconcile these two sides of John Gacy? Men such as he are usually said to be sociopaths. They are said to be lacking a conscience. The persona that is presented to the public is said to be nothing more than an elaborate ruse, an emotionless facade disguising the monster within. But is it not just as likely, if not more so, that the public self is, in fact, a legitimate personality, separate and distinct from the one that does the killing? And when the monster emerges, does this represent the facade slipping away, or an alter personality emerging? Or is there any difference? Is the sociopath label not, in the final analysis, just another way of describing multiple personality disorder? Kenneth Bianchi is, like many other serial killers, of unknown parentage. He was born the son of an alcoholic teenage prostitute on May 22, 1951 in Rochester, New York, and then privately adopted by the Bianchis. His adoptive parents were repeatedly reported to the Rochester Society for the prevention of cruelty to children for their treatment of their son. Ken was taken frequently to doctors and administered unspecified tests at the urging of his mother, who also frequently kept him home from school for prolonged absences, including nearly his entire kindergarten year. As a child, Bianchi frequently lapsed into trance-like states, during which time his eyes would roll back in his head. He later recalled enduring such punishments as having his hand held over a stove flame. He also is said to have once killed a cat and left it on his neighbor's porch on Halloween. Following high school, Bianchi sought psychiatric care and married briefly, although the union lasted just eight months. He also attended junior college, studying psychology and police science, and reportedly making frequent use of the school's medical facilities. He found work both as a bouncer and as an ambulance attendant, and apparently considered an Air Force career, for which he took a qualifying test. Sometime during his early adult years, Bianchi also joined a biker gang, which ostensibly was the inspiration for the rather remarkable tattoo that he sported on his arm, Satan's own MC. Perhaps not surprisingly, Ken had gaps in his memory, and would sometimes find himself walking down a street with no memory of how he got there or what he had been doing immediately prior. Such episodes are clear signs of a dissociative disorder, a category that includes fugue states and amnesia, as well as MPD, did. At the age of 26, Ken arrived in Hollywood and moved in with his cousin, Angelo Buono, and Angelo's son, also named Angelo Buono. Bianchi readily established access to a steady supply of drugs, which he both sold and used. He also, rather improbably, set up shop as a therapist, sharing office space with a legitimate therapist in North Hollywood. During this time in California, Ken claimed to be getting outpatient treatments for cancer, and he regularly visited a hospital to receive those treatments. He generally preferred to go alone to these appointments, although sometimes his girlfriend, Kelly, drove him there and then waited in the car for him to return. Bianchi, of course, never actually had cancer. There is no question though that he was indeed making regular visits to a medical facility, and he was receiving some kind of treatments, although at least one of his chroniclers has claimed that Ken would, on a regular basis, enter the hospital, randomly kill time by reading and hanging out, and then return to the car. What possible purpose would be served by his doing so is left unexplained, as is how Bianchi was able to bring home legitimate receipts and medical forms following these treatments. 
Ken's cousin and reputed partner, Angelo Buono, reportedly had a strong bond with his mother, whom he frequently accused of being a whore. He never lived more than a couple of miles from her throughout his entire adult life. Angelo quit high school at the age of 16 and he was shortly thereafter remanded to the custody of the California Youth Authority. By the age of 20, he was known for his flamboyance, exemplified by his habit of driving new Cadillacs. It is unclear how he suddenly acquired such wealth. Buono apparently had a lifelong penchant for underage girls. During his life, he married at least two of them. He fathered at least eight kids by his numerous wives. He reportedly regularly sodomized all of them. He also beat and sodomized his wives, often in front of the children. Angelo's sons and only daughter were frequent visitors to the house that their dad shared for a time with Ken Bianchi. Many young girls were frequent visitors as well, and some even lived there for varying periods of time. Angelo has been described as a magnet for women, and he had a constant stream of mostly teenage girls passing through his home. Many of them were working for him. His auto upholstery shop also served as a front for a teenage prostitution racket. Some of his girls, including 16-year-old Sabra Hannon and Rebecca Gay Spears, a 15-year-old biker's daughter, were kept virtually enslaved with regular beatings, rapes, and threats of death and dismemberment. Angelo supplied the services of these young girls to the city's business and political elite, including a city councilman, a police chief, and a chief aide to a member of the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. Such favors had earned sidekick Bianchi the right to display an L.A. County seal on the windshield of his Cadillac. Buono and Bianchi had connections to the Hollywood crowd as well. Angelo once shared a home with actor Artie Ford, a friend of fellow actor Jay Silverheels, the Lone Ranger's Tonto. He also repaired cars for Frank Sinatra and for reputed mafioso Joe Bonanno. Buono's daughter claimed that her father once drove her to Sinatra's Palm Springs home, where Angelo dropped off a package. Several of the suspects identified during the course of the investigation were Hollywood names as well. The first suspect booked was actor Ned York, who gave a long and rambling confession to the crimes. Another man questioned in connection to the stranglings was identified as a minor actor who had a film studio set up in his home. An aspiring actress told of going to this home for an audition and being forced to participate in the production of hardcore S&M films. Yet another suspect was a man identified only as a famous Hollywood producer who was said to enjoy the company of young girls. He was stopped by police while driving the car of a convicted rapist, accompanied by a young girl, and he was discovered to be in possession of a phony police ID. Buono was known to have two avid interests that are common to many alleged serial killers, guns and Polaroid photography. Angelo reportedly owned five rifles, two, 45 caliber handguns, and a Thompson submachine gun. He also owned a Polaroid camera, with which he was said to have photographed some of the pair's victims, although such photographs were never produced at trial. Buono and Bianchi's first purported victim was a black prostitute and drug dealer named Yolanda Washington whose nude body was found along Forest Lawn Drive. She had been strangled with intense force after having sexual contact with at least two men. Not long before her death, she and a group of fellow prostitutes had sold Buono a trick list. The month before Washington's body was found, a girl named Laura Collins was found similarly strangled and dumped not far from Forest Lawn Drive, but her death, oddly enough, was never attributed to the so-called hillside stranglers. The next victim, Judith Ann Miller, also a prostitute, was found sprawled nude on Halloween Day, 1977. 
She had been carefully placed by two or more individuals and had marks on her face, wrists and ankles that suggested that she had been gagged and bound, but her bindings had been subsequently removed. There were said to be two witnesses to the abduction, both of whom, like the killers and the victims, reeked of mind control operations. One was a woman who had worked as a subject for a professional stage hypnotist, he had hypnotized her on literally hundreds of occasions. She claimed to have seen Miller get into a car with a light-skinned black man. The other witness was a male bounty hunter named Marcus Camden, he saw the victim get into a dark blue limousine, which he said was definitely not Ken's Cadillac. He described the driver as a dark man with curly hair, Latin-looking, and with a big nose. Neither witness saw a second man in the vehicle, although both Bianchi and Buono were later said to have participated in the abduction. Investigator Frank Salerno promptly checked Camden into Cedars-Sinai Hospital for tests, for reasons that are unclear. Much later, Camden allegedly positively identified Angelo, at the time, he was voluntarily committed to Richmond State Hospital in Indiana. As an interesting side note, witness Camden was missing two left fingertips, which is, according to some unconfirmed reports, an identifying mark of some satanic cults. The next victim was Lisa Teresa Caston, an exotic dancer with the L.A. Knockers dance troupe. She was likely a prostitute as well, at the very least, she had considered the profession and had discussed it with others. A witness who worked on a composite drawing described Lissa's abductor as a white or Latino man with an olive complexion and acne, in his late twenties, six feet two inches or six feet three inches tall, 150 to 160 pounds. And with a thick mustache and a small mole on his left cheek, a description that didn't fit Buono or Bianchi. Jill Barkham was the next victim. She was, like the others, a prostitute who was found nude and strangled. Following her was Kathleen Robinson, described as being part of the street scene. Unlike the others, she was found fully clothed. Next was Christina Weckler, an honors student at the Pasadena Art Center. She was found nude and strangled, and she had had Windex injected into her arms and neck. Bob Grogan, one of lead investigators on the Strangler Task Force, pocketed and subsequently suppressed Weckler's personal notebook, a flagrantly illegal act that he later openly acknowledged. Grogan, who had served as a technical advisor on the T.J. Hooker television series, had connections to Santa Monica's Rand Corporation, which is widely regarded by researchers as a CIA front. The next two victims were Sonia Johnson and Dolly Cepeda, who were just 14 and 12 years old, respectively. Following them was Jane King, who was picked up across the street from the Scientology Manor, where she was reportedly taking acting classes. The body of Lauren Wagner was the next to be discovered, she had been strangled and electrocuted. There were purportedly at least three witnesses to her abduction, though all of them were problematic. One of these was a neighbor, Beulah Stouffer, who reportedly witnessed the abduction from the window of her home, after which she claimed to have received a threatening phone call. She said that she had seen two men argue with Wagner before dragging her into a car and had heard Lauren scream, you won't get away with this, strangely, however, she did not initially report what she had witnessed. Stouffer ultimately identified both Buono and Bianchi as the girl's abductors, after being questioned by Grogan on more than 100 occasions, by his own accounting. Prior to a visit to the crime scene by Buono's jury, Grogan later tampered with the scene by going to Stouffer's house to trim her front hedges, which normally blocked the view out of the window that Stouffer claimed to have witnessed the crime from. Another neighbor claimed to have witnessed the abduction of the girl as well, but this witness also failed to initially report the incident. A third witness claimed that he just happened to be driving by at the time of the abduction. 
The man was said to be a convicted killer who had been cured at a Tascadero, just like killer Ed Kemper had been cured at that same facility. Forensics evidence indicated a culprit other than Bianchi or Buono. A substance found on the corpse was determined to have come from a type B secretor, which ruled out both of the cousins. At trial, the state argued that the substance was nothing more than ant residue. The media, which had been focusing their bright lights on the trial, decided, for no apparent reason, not to provide coverage of this rather dubious testimony. The next victim, Kimberly Diane Martin, was found in a vacant apartment, bound, gagged, strangled, and with a fractured skull and blood dripping from her ear. She was an underage alcohol prostitute who had been dispatched to meet a trick. The request had reportedly been phoned in by Ken Bianchi. Just three days after her death, Bianchi went on a ride along with the LAPD. The last victim attributed to the hillside stranglers was Cindy Lee Hudspeth, who was strangled and stuffed nude into the trunk of a car, which was then pushed over an incline. Bianchi would later claim, in a purported confession, that the car was pushed over front end first, evidence indicated otherwise. This was just one of many details that his confessions would get wrong. Soon after the killings began, a task force was established that included elements of the LAPD, the LA Sheriff's Department, and the Glendale Police Department. It eventually grew to include 162 officers. The task force's headquarters was in room 832 of the Justice Building, which had been converted from its original use as a courtroom, the very same courtroom where Charles Manson had been tried and convicted. The team was led by Frank Salerno, who had earlier headed a narcotics team that had arrested the very same Charles Manson on drug charges. Also on board the task force was the aforementioned evidence tamperer, Bob Grogan. Weekly press conferences were held by then-Chief Daryl F. Gates, who had little progress to report as the killings continued, with some of the bodies showing up carefully posed in the hills near the L.A. Police Academy. All of the victims had been raped, and yet semen tests that were conducted reportedly yielded nothing. Ken Bianchi was questioned on multiple occasions during the investigation, by at least two LAPD officers and one Glendale cop, but he was cleared each time. One expert consulted by the press was none other than Dr. Louis Jollyon West, a prominent member of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation who was connected to numerous covert CIA operations throughout his career. West told the LA Times, it would be most unlikely to find this done by more than one person, this type is almost always the work of a single person. This was an obvious bit of disinformation that flew in the face of the known facts of the case. Not long after the hillside stranglings, West was one of the first prominent mouthpieces to promote the mass suicide story to explain what happened at Jonestown. This was another rather obvious bit of disinformation. Three months after the last killing, Bianchi left the Los Angeles area for Bellingham, Washington, where he wasted no time in joining the Whatcom County Sheriff's Reserves. Strangely enough, the chief of the police department of Bianchi's new city of residence was both a former Los Angeles cop and a friend of 14-year-old victim Sonia Johnson's father, the bookkeeper for an L.A.-area Catholic parish school. Chief Terry Mangan had an unusual history that sounded as though it could have been written by a Hollywood screenwriter. While working as an ordained priest and as a high school teacher and dean of students in Monterey, California, he began serving as a counselor to the police. He was soon regularly hanging out at the police academy and riding on patrol every night, becoming some kind of mythical priest cop. He ultimately left the priesthood altogether and became a full-fledged cop. In 1976, the year before the stranglings began, he was named the new chief of the Bellingham Force. On January 12, 1979, 
Two Western Washington University coeds were found bound and strangled. Footprints and a loose pubic hair were reportedly recovered at the scene. New Bellingham resident Ken Bianchi was arrested shortly after the discovery of the bodies, and he promptly confessed. He was appointed Dean Brett as his defense counsel, and a psychiatric social worker named John Johnson was assigned to the case as well. Bianchi was held in isolation and allowed only limited visitation with family and friends. Before long, he was examined by a stream of psychiatrists, psychologists, some of whom had known and long-standing connections to the CIA. The first to examine Bianchi, on the spring equinox, was Dr. John Watkins, who questioned the accused in the presence of Brett, Johnson, Frank Salerno and Salerno's partner, both of whom had flown up from Los Angeles. Next was Dr. Ron Markman of Los Angeles, a man with the dubious distinction of being both a psychiatrist and an attorney. He had previously been involved in both the Manson and the SLA, Patty Hearst cases. The stench surrounding the Strangler case reached a new level with the arrival of the next examiner, none other than Dr. Donald Lundy, last seen playing a pivotal role in the Frazier, Kemper and Mullen cases. Conveniently enough, Lundy just happened to have family in Bellingham that he purportedly just happened to be visiting at the time, so he just sort of dropped in for off-the-record examination of the famed Hillside Strangler. Next up was Dr. Ralph Allison, brought in from, of all places, Santa Cruz, California. He finished up with Bianchi on April 19th, and Watkins returned the next day to administer a Rorschach test. The following day, April 21st, Angelo Buono's house was searched for the very first time. The home was found to be immaculately neat and, amazingly enough, it reportedly contained not a single fingerprint, which would tend to indicate that Buono had been tipped off prior to the search. In May, Vienna-born Martin Orn, sent in by the state, took a turn at examining Bianchi. Orn was another false memory syndrome foundation luminary who received extensive CIA funding and who, probably not coincidentally, had testified at the SLA trial. In June, Dr. Saul Fairstein of Beverly Hills took his turn with Bianchi and in July, Dr. Lundy returned for an on-the-record examination. Lundy's role was to build the prosecution's case to try Bianchi in Los Angeles as the Hillside Strangler. As such, Lundy's examination concentrated almost exclusively on discussion of the L.A. killings. Like Orn and Fairstein, Lundy largely dismissed the notion that Ken was suffering from MPD. Others have claimed that Bianchi displayed at least four distinct personalities, who were named Ken, Steve, Billy and Friend. Salerno and Grogan, as well as most of Bianchi's chroniclers, have claimed that the symptoms displayed by the suspect were an obvious ruse. Dr. John Watkins to this day sticks by his initial diagnosis of MPD. On October 2, 1980, Veronica Lynn Compton, a playwright and actress and the daughter of an LA-area editorial cartoonist, was arrested for attempted murder in Bellingham. The attack was said to be an attempt to commit a copycat killing that would have cast doubts on the incarcerated Bianchi's guilt in the earlier killings. Strangely, Compton's victim did not bother to report the incident until several days after the alleged attempt was made on her life. Compton had been sexually active from an early age, as evidenced by the fact that she was only 23 and yet she had an 8-year-old son. She had reportedly slept with numerous Hollywood figures, including a lawyer, agent who was later killed in an unsolved murder case. She confided to Bianchi that she herself had killed before, and that she shared with him an interest in necrophilia. On October 19, Bianchi appeared before a judge and entered a guilty plea based on a deal that had been worked out with the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. 
The deal allowed the state of Washington to avoid a trial that would have revealed the state's case to be rather dubious. That case was built primarily on hair and fiber evidence, which is inherently problematic, and which is also, it should be noted, by far the easiest type of evidence to plant. The official version of events was filled with discrepancies and such odd events as evidence strangely turning up at the crime scene the day after it was combed over by investigators following the discovery of the bodies. Nevertheless, Ken entered a guilty plea and agreed to testify against Buono in exchange for a life sentence to be served in California, even though the possibility existed that he would still receive death sentences for the charges pending in California. In other words, Bianchi gained absolutely nothing from the plea deal offered to him and guaranteed himself a life sentence at a minimum. Ken had worked with his attorney until late into the night before his court appearance. He was instructed to stare at his hands while repeating the words, these hands have killed, before entering the courtroom, to ensure that he did not back away from the agreement to enter the guilty plea. Within 24 hours, Ken was on his way back to Los Angeles. Along the way, he was questioned by Salerno and Grogan and got many of the details of the crimes wrong, which did not seem to phase the two detectives in the least. Within days of his arrival in LA, he had received additional life terms. Shortly after his arrival though, Ken began to have doubts about the deal he had made, and by November, he was insisting on his innocence. That same month, Angelo Buono's Glendale home suddenly vanished, it had been bulldozed on the orders of the owner of the glass shop that sat next door. Buono, who by that time was sitting in a special security section of the county jail alongside his son Peter, a former Marine and a longtime PCP addict, had signed over the deed to the property. The glass shop owner denied that he had colluded with Buono to destroy evidence, and he was never charged with committing a crime. Around that same time, prosecutor Roger Kelly opted to drop all the remaining murder charges against Bianchi, thereby giving up the leverage the state intended to use to compel Ken to testify against his cousin. Kelly also reportedly attempted to break down and discredit the testimony of two prosecution witnesses. Nevertheless, a nearly year-long preliminary trial for Buono was begun, assigned to Judge Ronald George. George had attended Beverly Hills schools and then the prestigious École Internationale de Genève, which functions as something of an intelligence prep school. Founded in 1924 by a League of Nations group, it is attended by the sons of diplomats, European royalty and finance capitalists. George next attended Princeton University. By the age of 30, he was arguing before the U.S. Supreme Court to have the death penalty reinstated in California. In 1972, he was appointed to the bench by nominal conservative Ronald Reagan, and in 1977, he was elevated to the Superior Court by nominal liberal Jerry Brown. On July 13, 1981, Kelly, backed by District Attorney John Van de Kamp, moved to drop all charges against Buono. Judge George, in a highly unusual move, ruled that the case be prosecuted. Kelly promptly withdrew, clearing the way for George to assign the case to the state's attorney general, George Dickmajan. On November 6, jury selection began. In a rather unlikely development, 10 of the 12 jurors who were seated worked in civil service positions. These men and women spent the next two years of their lives hearing the case against Angelo Buono. Kenneth Bianchi alone delivered five months of testimony. In order for Bianchi's testimony to be heard, however, it had to be determined whether he had been hypnotized in Washington. If so, his testimony would have been disallowed under California law. Judge George accommodated the prosecution by concurring with the opinion of covert operative Martin Orne that Bianchi had faked both his hypnotism and his dissociative disorder. 
The judge did disallow Bianchi's Bellingham confession tapes ruling that they had not been made under oath. This was not likely an effort by the judge to prevent the railroading of the defendant, but rather to avoid having the trial's verdict overturned on appeal. The tapes, which showed Bianchi confessing to the crimes in an even, matter-of-fact, emotionless voice, were entered into evidence in a way that would not compromise the verdict, they were entered by the defense. The defense also opened a door that allowed the state to call, as rebuttal witnesses, three young women who had been held by Buono as enslaved prostitutes. Their testimony had been earlier disallowed by the judge. After doing a considerable amount of damage to their client's case, the defense rested on August 2, 1983, after noting for the jury that both Charlie Chaplin and Lewis Carroll shared with Angelo a fondness for underage girls. In a highly unusual move, the judge opted to sequester the jury for the duration of their deliberations, even though they had been free for the entire two-year duration of the trial itself. He also specifically instructed them to return verdicts on the numerous counts separately, which was another highly unusual jury instruction. The first guilty verdict was delivered after 10 days of deliberations, appropriately enough on Halloween Day, 1983. By the time the deliberations were through, Buono had been convicted on 9 of 10 counts. Perhaps sensing that his defense team did not have his best interests in mind, Buono requested that he be allowed to represent himself for the penalty phase of the trial, his request was denied. On January 9, 1984, Buono was formally sentenced to life in prison. In the aftermath of the trial, Van de Kamp was elected to replace outgoing Attorney General George Dickmajan, who was elevated to the office of Governor of the State of California. His underling, Robert Filibosian, became the new L.A. District Attorney. Prosecutors Roger Boren and Michael Nash were both appointed to the bench by Governor Dick Majan, after Nash prosecuted the death penalty appeal of Douglas Clark, whose case will be examined in the next chapter. Judge Ronald George was elevated to the California Supreme Court, and ultimately was named its Chief Justice. Defense counsel Gerald Chaliff now serves as the senior advisor to the city attorney's office. While there is a very strong probability that the two cousins were involved in the killings, it is just as likely that others were involved as well. Many believe that a police officer was directly involved. Several were questioned during the course of the investigation, and a few who were conclusively linked to the times and places of the disappearances and or the body drop sites could not account for their time. Another suspect was a man named George Shamshak, who escaped from a Massachusetts prison around the time that the killings began, and who was recaptured around the time that they ended. Shamshak confessed to the murders, and even offered the press what he said were audio tapes of some of the killings. He also claimed that a Beverly Hills resident named Peter Mark Jones was involved. Jones was arrested and released, and then he promptly left the city and was quickly forgotten. As for the Washington murders, Bianchi maintained that an accomplice performed the killings. The man, identified only as Greg, was known to the police. He was killed in a freak motorcycle accident near the body drop site, shortly after Kenneth Bianchi's arrest. In September 2002, Angelo Buono died in prison. Kenneth Bianchi continues to serve his time. John Wayne Gacy was born the son of an abusive, alcoholic father, as his sister and mother both attested to in court. Little else has been written about John's early years, although it is known that the senior Gacy constantly belittled his son and once shot the boy's dog. He was also known to beat John's mother. As a teenager, Gacy worked in Las Vegas both at a mortuary and as an ambulance attendant. At the mortuary, it was said that he had a habit of sleeping in the embalming room, amongst the corpses. He was fired after some of those corpses were found to have been partially undressed. 
In the 1960s, John lived in Waterloo, Iowa, where he owned several businesses, including four restaurants, a clothing design firm and a motel. During that period of his life, he joined the Jaycees and quickly forged a bond with the man who soon became the local chapter president. This particular J.C. chapter was known at the time to be involved in prostitution, pornography, and various other crimes of vice. A local prosecutor identified Geisha's motel, managed by his newfound friend, as the hub of those activities. According to the prosecutor, the motel was a front for a gay and straight prostitution ring. Gacy was in the habit of hiring many young people of both sexes to work at his businesses. He also reportedly set up what was described as a social club in his basement recreation room, which he kept well stocked with drugs and alcohol to supply to his numerous underage guests. He was also said by those who knew him at the time to control his wife and to openly offer her sexual services to friends and colleagues. One former employee also said that Gacy always carried a gun. On March 11, 1968, Donald Voorhees Jr., the son of a J.C. and former Iowa state representative, gave a statement to police alleging that Gacy had assaulted and sodomized him. In early May, Gacy was indicted by a grand jury, though no further action was taken for several months. On September 12, John made a court appearance at which he was ordered to submit to a psychiatric examination at the ominously named Psychopathic Hospital of the State University of Iowa. While in custody there, he spoke freely to investigators of wholesale corruption among the city's elite. He talked of gambling, prostitution, pornography, wife swapping, and the corruption and complicity of local police. He supplied the names of numerous JCs, police personnel, and various other prominent individuals who were involved in criminal enterprises. When brought before a judge, Gacy threw himself at the mercy of the court and entered a guilty plea. On December 3, 1968, he was sentenced to a 10-year term. He served less than two of those years, earning parole on June 18, 1970. While in prison, he somehow managed to always have money, cigars, and civilian shirts, all difficult commodities to attain for most prisoners. According to some reports, Gacy received electroshock and aversion therapy while incarcerated, allegedly to cure him of his homosexuality. Just eight months after his release, he was again arrested, this time for disorderly conduct. Despite the violation, just eight months after that he was released from parole. Another eight months after that, on the summer solstice of 1972, he was again arrested and charged with aggravated battery and reckless conduct. Gacy had allegedly offered a young man a ride on June 7, identified himself as a police officer, and then attempted to handcuff the boy. Failing in that endeavor, Gacy had then clubbed him on the back of his neck, kicked him, and then pursued him with his car and struck him down. Curiously, the charges were dismissed against Gacy, whose fingerprint card on file with local police carried the alias, Colonel, Gacy. In July 1975, the first known victim whose death would be attributed to John Gacy disappeared. The young man, John Bukovich, was an employee of Gacy's construction company, which specialized in drugstore remodels. Geisha's home was later found to be fully stocked with an array of pharmaceuticals. Just one night before his disappearance, Butkovich had been involved in a disturbance at a friend's house. He was rumored to have gone to Puerto Rico to traffic drugs, and his family received a collect call from a woman in San Juan who claimed that John was alive and well. Someone apparently made an effort to thwart a missing persons investigation. Boys and young men continued to disappear for the next several years, though no one really paid much attention. 
The missing boys were routinely considered runaways by the police, despite pleas from many of the parents to investigate their son's disappearances as missing persons cases. On January 6, 1978, Gacy was arrested for deviant sexual contact, but the assistant state's attorney rejected the filing of felony charges. Six months later, Gacy was charged with battery. A 27-year-old man had been picked up and then knocked out with a rag placed over his mouth. He awoke in a park with burns on his face and a bleeding rectum. The man had been picked up from the city's gay district, where Gacy was very well known and widely believed to be a cop. The victim gave police the license number of Geisha's car, and he was soon taken into custody. Several court dates were allowed to pass with no action taken on the charges. John Wayne Gacy was, after all, a very well-connected guy. He served as a lighting commissioner and as a Democratic Party precinct captain. He claimed to have been an aide to Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, and he was known to be on friendly terms with Illinois Attorney General William Scott. He also claimed that local columnist Mike Royko and local TV anchorman Walter Jacobson were good friends of his. He once had his photo taken with First Lady Rosalind Carter. The image is signed to John Gacy. Best wishes, Rosalind Carter. In the photo, Gacy is wearing a Secret Service S lapel pin, indicating that he had been given a high-level security clearance. Another hint of Geisha's political connections was provided by an observation made by one of his prosecutors. Two items on Geisha's Chicago police report were blacked out, indicating that they were FBI matters. John also laid claim to having organized crime connections, which is not surprising given the fine line between politics and organized crime. Gacy claimed not only that he himself worked for the syndicate, but also that he was a cousin of local mob figure Tony Accardo. Gacy continued in Chicago his practice from Iowa of surrounding himself with young people. He frequently entertained as a clown at hospitals, orphanages, and at private parties. He also hired a steady stream of teenage boys to work for his construction firm, at least three of whom went missing, and another of whom followed an interesting path that will be examined in the next chapter. On the night of December 11, 1978, a young man named Rob Peace disappeared. He had last been seen outside of the pharmacy where he was then employed, talking to Gacy about a job with his construction company. The Peast family focused their suspicions on John Gacy and pharmacy owner Phil Torf, who was evasive when questioned about the boy's disappearance and who refused to provide Gacy's address. For unexplained reasons, Torf had remained at the pharmacy that night with his friends until 1 a.m., three full hours after closing time. The Peast family quickly grew angry with the police over their handling of the case, and they began threatening to storm the Gacy house. In order to pacify the family and prevent them from acting on their threats, police agreed to begin surveillance of John Gacy. Assigned to the task was a special, Delta unit of the Displains police. What followed was a surreal game of cat and mouse in which Gacy at times all but joined the surveillance team, whining and dining his alleged pursuers, inviting them into his home and allowing them to ride along with him in his car. At other times, he would drive maniacally around town with the Delta unit in pursuit, reportedly hitting speeds of up to 100 miles per hour, even in school zones. Amazingly, he was never stopped during such escapades, let alone ticketed or arrested. Police also searched Geisha's house, which was said to be meticulously neat. 
The search yielded a number of interesting items, a high school ring that had belonged to one of the missing boys, an Illinois driver's license issued to another boy, marijuana and rolling papers, a vast supply of pharmaceuticals, a switchblade knife, a pair of handcuffs, police badges, a hypodermic syringe, numerous items of clothing that were obviously too small for Gacy, a photo lab receipt later traced to Rob Peast, an empty brown bottle that had contained chloroform, a blood-stained rug, and a homemade stock. One room in the home was completely filled with clown pictures. The crawlspace underneath the house, where employees had been asked to dig trenches, was covered with a layer of lime, useful for hastening the decomposition of bodies. There were nearly 30 of them buried there in shallow graves. More had been dumped into the Displains River some 65 miles from Geisha's home. Police opted not to arrest Gacy at the time of the search, despite the seemingly incriminating evidence found in his home, and despite the fact that they had received complaints from at least five assault victims, three in Chicago alone, all alleging druggings and torture administered by Gacy, and despite the fact that Gacy still had charges pending against him from the incident earlier in the year. However, Gacy did have an alibi for the evening that checked out, he had been at the hospital at the side of his uncle, who died the very night that Rob Peace disappeared. On the eve of the winter solstice, Gacy was arrested for the final time, although not on murder charges, but for possession of marijuana. Just the day before his arrest, the conviction of Elmer Wayne Henley in Texas had been reversed. Henley had been convicted a few years earlier, in 1974, for his participation in what one of Gacy's chroniclers described as a homosexual torture ring that killed 27 boys. Henley and his two accomplices provided quite a model for Gacy to follow. The trio lured young boys to the home of Dean Coral, where they were tortured, raped and killed on a special torture board in Coral's plastic-draped bedroom. Their bodies were then buried beneath a layer of lime in Coral's rented boathouse, while the parents of several of the victims received phone calls or were sent letters assuring them that their sons were still very much alive. In Houston as in Chicago, police insisted on classifying the growing numbers of missing boys as runaways. Geisha's marijuana arrest prompted a second search of his home, during which the bodies in his crawlspace were discovered. How they were not discovered during the earlier search, or detected during the numerous visits to the Gacy home by his surveillance team, remains a bit of a mystery. Every corner of the house was said to literally reek of death due to the decomposition of the bodies buried in the shallow graveyard just beneath the floorboards. The second search also turned up a garage freezer that contained unmarked frozen meat and a container full of what inspectors suspected was blood. These items were later claimed to be nothing more than stewed tomatoes and non-human meat, although one would think seasoned homicide investigators would know the difference between stewed tomatoes and blood. While his home was being searched, Gacy was taken to Holy Family Hospital for a medical examination, allegedly due to complaints of chest pains. Immediately upon his release from the hospital, John read and signed a Miranda waiver and began confessing to the murders. One of his first questions to police was, who else do you have in the station? There are others involved. Gacy was then asked if the others were involved directly or indirectly, to which he responded, directly. They participated. Asked who these others might be, he answered simply, my associates. He was also asked where Rob Peast was, to which he answered, I don't know. I didn't transport him. When asked who did, he replied, I can't say. This interrogation was cut short by a Sergeant Long, and then later resumed with two attorneys at Geisha's side. No further mention was made of any accomplices, and the issue does not appear to have been pursued thereafter. 
Perhaps notably though, the homicide rate in the Chicago area soared following Geisha's arrest, possibly indicating that a large cleanup operation ensued. And on December 28, a week after John's arrest, a fresh body was fished from the Displains River. Although Gacy confessed to being a mass murderer, he had very little knowledge of the crimes to which he confessed. He claimed, for instance, that all of the victims were strangled, but forensics evidence suggested that at least 13 of them had in fact been suffocated. He provided a map of the locations of the bodies under his house that press reports claimed was accurate, even though it actually contained numerous discrepancies. Gacy was able to recall sketchy details of only five of the killings, of the other 28, he had no memory at all. He claimed that the murders began in 1974, but then later stated that the first occurred in January 1972. He attributed all of the murders to an alter personality that he referred to as Jack Hanley. John was denied bail and sent to Cermak Hospital, which was the medical wing of the local jail, and kept isolated from other inmates. Jail personnel were instructed to have no contact with him either. Not long into his stay there, Gacy wrote a letter that read, Since the dark shadow of Satan has come over me, it seems that my fair-weather friends have run away. During his second week at Cermak he consented to an interview, with the full cooperation of his attorney, during which he once again confessed to the murders. He claimed rather preposterously that the victims were mostly male prostitutes who he had killed over price disputes. To explain how he had gained control of the young, healthy victims prior to killing them, Gacy put forth a dubious story about using a handcuff trick to get the young men to handcuff themselves. On January 10, 1979, not guilty pleas were entered on Gacy's behalf in response to the seven murder counts that had been brought against him. On April 23, a grand jury handed down indictments on 26 additional counts, bringing the total to 33. Two days later, Gacy entered, not guilty, pleas to the additional counts. Jury selection for his trial began in January 1980. Despite intense pre-trial publicity, overshadowed for a time by news of the carnage at Jonestown, the venue of the trial was not changed. Instead, jurors were selected from another county and then sequestered. Remarkably, the jury selection process was over in just four days. The trial began on February 6, 1980. Following opening statements, the state called 60 witnesses to present its case against John Gacy. The defense's case, such as it was, was presented in less than a week. Gacy was clearly unhappy with the work of his legal team. In a letter to the judge, he complained, I ask that my trial be stopped and I haven't heard from you. When I ask my attorney as to why we are not putting on more witnesses, I am told that we don't have money to bring in experts. The state began its rebuttal of the defense case on February 29th, and, due to the numerous doors opened by mistakes made during the abbreviated presentation of a defense, it was given enormous latitude. Prosecutors were allowed to call, for instance, a number of witnesses who had survived attacks by Gacy, their testimony had originally been excluded. These young men all told similar stories of druggings and torture that were highly damaging to the defense. It must be said here that these victims all told of being victimized solely by Gacy, which seemed to indicate that he was indeed the sole perpetrator of the crimes committed against the 33 dead victims. What was never explained, however, was why it was that after these victims had been subdued, raped and tortured, and were completely under the control of the alleged serial killer, they were subsequently released, very much alive and able to bear witness against the defendant. Serial killers, we are told, are essentially slaves to their unnatural desires who, once they up the ante and begin killing their victims, are unable to stop themselves from killing again and again. 
and yet we are to believe that John Wayne Gacy, purportedly one of the most successful and most deranged serial killers of all time, was able to torture his victims for hours on end, but then pull back from the edge and opt to let some of them go now and then. And we are to believe that he had no concern with leaving living witnesses that could easily have been disposed of in his crawlspace. The possibility exists that Gacy was not actually able to kill alone, although he was clearly capable of raping and torturing his helpless victims. Perhaps, as his initial statements to police indicated, there were others involved in the actual killings, and Gacy's house was just a convenient place to dispose of the bodies. Gacy himself suggested such a scenario in another of his letters to the judge, as you know, other than the so-called statements made by me, and given in a self-serving manner by officers for the prosecution, there is only evidence that I own the house that was used for bodies, their safekeeping. Gacy's statement was an accurate one, as outrageous as it may at first appear to be. And there were at least a half-dozen people known to have keys to Gacy's home. One of the surviving victims who testified against Gacy had a rather interesting story to tell. Under oath, he told of having a meeting with the police and the assistant state's attorney not long after his initial complaint was filed. At that meeting, he was not allowed to sign any complaints against Gacy and he was bluntly informed that no action was going to be taken. The last rebuttal witness called was a man named James Hanley whose purpose was, reportedly, to discredit Gacy's claim of having an alter personality named Jack Hanley. The state claimed that Gacy had appropriated this man's name for his concocted alter personality in an attempt to avoid responsibility for his crimes. Prosecution claimed that the witness's belated appearance was due to the fact that they had had investigators looking for Hanley for more than a year, but somehow the police computer didn't turn up his name. That was a rather stunning claim given that Hanley was one of their own, he had been a plainclothes detective with the Chicago Police Department since the late 1960s. To no one's surprise, a Geisha's jury reached a verdict on their first vote, after less than two hours of deliberations. He was found guilty of all 33 first-degree murder counts. Following just two more hours of deliberations, after the sentencing phase of the trial, the jury unanimously voted to impose the death sentence. While awaiting his scheduled execution, Gacy occupied his time painting portraits of clowns and Disney figures, a common pastime of convicted serial killers, many of whom consider themselves to be artists, including painters, poets, writers and musicians. Elmer Wayne Henley, like Gacy, whiles away his time in prison painting scenes that are far removed from the violent crimes he was convicted of. While it is abundantly clear that Gacy was involved in the abductions and murders, it seems unlikely that he was acting alone. In addition to the facts already presented here that indicate the possible involvement of others, there were other indications that something was not quite right about the Gacy case, and that elements of the police were complicit in the operations. Following the disappearance of one of Gacy's employees, Greg Godzik, John was not questioned by police for a full three months. Godzik's frustrated parents turned for help to private investigator Anthony Pelicano Jr., a shadowy character who tends to surface in organized crime and Hollywood circles, and who, as this is being written, is facing a variety of charges in Los Angeles in connection with a case he was working on for actor Steven Seagal. Pelicano never checked out Gacy and later claimed that he had never been given the name by Godzik's parents, which was an interesting claim given that the primary reason for his hiring was to investigate the man that the police refused to investigate. Pelicano nevertheless maintained that he had been told that Greg worked at a gas station, not for John Gacy. 
Godzik was reportedly seen still very much alive after the time of his reported abduction, as was at least one other victim and former Gacy employee, John Schitz. In one of those bizarre coincidences that seemed to surround serial killer cases, the Godzik home was burglarized the night before the story of John Wayne Gacy's arrest hit the airwaves. The family of victim Rick Johnston was convinced that Rick had been abducted by the Reverend Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church, an organization heavily steeped in mind control and with extensive connections to South Koreans' version of the CIA, which was created and trained by our own CIA. Victim John Mowry, a former Marine, was the second sibling in his family to fall prey to a sadistic killer. His sister Judith had been found stabbed to death in her apartment in November 1972. As for the unnamed others who were possibly involved in the killings, there were any number of people who lived for varying periods of time in the Gacy home, or who regularly spent time there, all of whom denied knowledge of the crimes and of the source of the stench permeating the house. One of Geisha's longtime employees and sometime houseguest, identified only by the pseudonym of Dick Walsh, was said to be evasive when questioned. He was given a polygraph examination, but his examiners claimed they were unable to render a definite opinion. There is no indication that further examinations were attempted. Another Gacy employee was Gordon Nabel, who reportedly worked as the company's bookkeeper. He was curiously misidentified in the logs that Gacy's surveillance team kept of his visitors, even though the officers were well aware of Nabel's identity, and aware that he worked two days a week inside the death house. Two other associates of Gacy's, Donald Morrill and Ronald Rode, were known to have protected and shielded John from police during his period of surveillance. Neither of them appears to have been investigated in connection to the crimes, nor were any of the numerous names that appeared in Geisha's address book marked with a mysterious H. Whether any of these associates were involved in the deaths of the victims will likely never be known. The man in the best position to provide answers to those types of questions was executed by the state of Illinois on May 10, 1994. Theodore Robert Bundy was yet another serial killer whose parentage remains obscured. He entered this world in 1946 at the Elizabeth Lund home for unwed mothers and he was promptly abandoned there for three months by his mother, Eleanor Cowell. He was raised to believe that his mother's father, Sam Cowell, was his father as well, which he may in fact have been. Chronicler Anne Rule has written that the identity of Ted's real father was unknown outside of the family, and that he was a shadowy man whose real identity grows more blurred with every year that passes. Throughout his life, Bundy described his church deacon father, grandfather in glowing terms, while other family members have characterized him as a horrendously violent and abusive man who terrorized his family and was sadistic to animals. Sam Cowell's own brothers reportedly stated on numerous occasions that somebody should kill him to spare others further misery. In October 1950, Ted's mother began calling herself Louise and legally changed her son's name from Theodore Robert Cowell to Theodore Robert Nelson, for no discernible reason. The next year, she married Johnny Culpepper Bundy and changed Ted's name once again. Johnny, a former Navy man and a member of a large clan of Tacoma Bundys, was employed at, of all places, a military hospital at a joint Army-Air Force complex. Ted attended Woodrow Wilson High School in Tacoma, Washington, at least according to his former classmates he did. That cannot be verified, however, since all records of Bundy's enrollment there have strangely disappeared. After graduation, he worked for a municipal electric utility. In the spring of 1967, Ted met a woman identified by the pseudonym Stephanie Brooks. She was the daughter of a wealthy California family and was just one of many women who would be drawn into Ted's orbit. 
In the summer of 1968, Bundy received a scholarship to attend Dr. Lundy's Stanford University, just as that tiny geographic region of the country was about to become the serial killer capital of the world. Ted purportedly attended Stanford for sessions in intensive Chinese studies, although nothing else in his biography hints at any interest in Chinese studies. That same year, Ted traveled to Florida to attend the Republican National Convention as a supporter of presidential candidate Nelson Rockefeller. At about that same time, he worked as a driver and bodyguard for Art Fletcher, a candidate for lieutenant governor in the state of Washington. In 1969, Bundy traveled to Aspen, Colorado for an extended stay, after telling friends that he had been hired as a ski instructor, which turned out to be a lie. The real reason for Ted's stay in Aspen remains unknown. He also paid a visit to Arkansas that year, reportedly to visit relatives. In September 1969, another woman entered Ted Bundy's orbit. Variously identified as Liz Kendall or Meg Anders, she was the daughter of a prominent doctor in the Mormon stronghold of Ogden, Utah. Despite her social standing, her estranged husband was a convicted felon. Meg, Liz apparently did not have the best taste in men. In 1971, Ted began working at the Seattle Crisis Clinic as a paid work study student. He remained there through May 1972. His work partner at the clinic was none other than Ann Rule, a policewoman cum, true crime, reporter whose brother had been recently killed, allegedly by his own hand, at, where else? Stanford University. Ted left the crisis center to intern at Harborview County Hospital as a psychiatric counselor. His salary there was funded by a federal grant. He also worked that year as a key organizer of Washington Governor Dan Evans' re-election campaign. His job was, specifically, to spy and gather intelligence on the governor's opponent. Governor Evans later personally wrote Ted a glowing letter of recommendation to a Utah law school. As noted earlier in this chapter, Ted next worked for a variety of city, state and county law enforcement entities. In April 1973, he became a special assistant to Washington's Republican Party chairman, Ross Davis, whom Ted frequently dined with and whose children, amazingly enough, he occasionally babysat. In July of that same year, Bundy again flew to the San Francisco area, just as the dust was settling from the flurry of ritual murders that had terrorized that city. Just after his return to Washington, women began disappearing from the Seattle-Tacoma area. Before that time, the Seattle area had experienced very few murders, but that was about to change dramatically. The body of the first victim attributed to Bundy was found on December 6, 1973. Catherine Mary Devine had last been seen two weeks earlier getting into a pickup truck after running away from home. The man from whom she willingly accepted the ride was not Ted Bundy. Her body was found to be missing its heart, lungs and liver, purportedly attributable to scavenging animals. If so, those scavengers were very selective. Next to disappear was Linda Healy, in the early morning hours of February 1, 1974. According to the official version of events, Linda was abducted from the home that she shared with others. Bundy allegedly entered the house, undetected by any of the home's other occupants, crept noiselessly downstairs, overpowered and killed Linda without waking a roommate sleeping just on the other side of a thin plywood partition, and without leaving behind any signs of a struggle, wrapped Linda's body, carried it back upstairs undetected, and then returned, still unnoticed, to make Linda's bed, hang up her nightgown, and grab a change of clothes for her. Nothing unusual about any of that. Later that same day, Linda's roommates received three phone calls from someone who made only breathing noises before hanging up. 
One of those very same roommates later roomed with one of Ted Bundy's cousins, a cousin with whom Ted had been very close since the age of four. The brother of that same cousin, with whom Bundy was also quite close, was a teacher of what were described as disturbed youngsters. Linda herself did volunteer work at the Camelot House, described as an experimental school for retarded youth. The only remains of Healy ever found was her skull, based on which investigators speculated that she had been bludgeoned to death. According to Healy's mother, the positive identification of that skull was based on a single tooth, raising the question of whether Linda was actually ever found at all. There was certainly nothing ever found of college student Donna Gail Manson, the next girl to disappear. She was last seen on March 12, but it took nearly a week before anyone bothered to report her missing. Whereas Healy, who bore no physical resemblance to Manson, was abducted from her home, Donna had reportedly been out walking when she disappeared. Donna Manson is said by Bundy chronicler Stephen Michaud to have dabbled in occultism. Anne Rule described her as having an obsession with death, magic, and alchemy. Found in her room was literature from Thought Power, Inc., described by Rule as an organization offering seminars on positive thinking and mind discipline. The chief of the college police force, Alfred Pickles, reportedly ordered a perfunctory search of the campus following Donna's disappearance, and then inexplicably delegated oversight of the case to, bizarrely enough, his secretary. One of Ted's friends had been Manson's occasional racquetball partner. Another friend of Ted's was a jogging partner of Susan Rencourt, last seen on April 17th. Only her skull was ever found, along with several others, on nearby Taylor Mountain. Along with the proliferation of missing girls, the Pacific Northwest was grappling with another emerging problem in the spring of 1974, an abundance of what are referred to as cattle mutilations. While conspiracy theories attempting to explain this phenomenon abound, such theories frequently involving UFOs and alien experimentation, many police investigators and independent researchers have linked these occurrences to local satanic cult activity. Next to disappear from the Seattle area were Roberta Kathleen Parks and Brenda Ball. Both were later identified only by skulls that were found on Taylor Mountain. Ball was not reported missing for two and a half weeks following her purported abduction. She was, curiously enough, an acquaintance of Bundy chronicler Anne Rule's daughter. Jorgen Hawkins reportedly disappeared from a well-lit, heavily-traveled alleyway running along her campus's Greek Row on June 11, 1974. Many of her fellow students were up late that warm night, and virtually every window along the row facing the alley was open. Georgianne was seen by fellow students approaching her sorority house, right up until she was within a few seconds of the entrance. Nevertheless, she then disappeared without anyone seeing or hearing a thing. No clues were left behind and no body was ever found. Police investigators, including a man named Herb Swindler, who took over as head of the homicide division on the very day that George Ann's disappearance was reported, and who had been friends with Ann Rule for 20 years, were at a loss to explain the disappearance. A high school friend of Ted Bundy's was a friend of the missing girl's family. On July 3, 1974, a law enforcement summit was held in Olympia, Washington that was attended by 100 representatives from Washington and Oregon. A prime topic of conversation at the summit was the wave of missing girls, which was rather odd since only one of the girls' remains had yet been discovered, confirming that she had met with foul play, and there was no indication whatsoever that the disappearances, which occurred over a wide geographic area, were connected in any way. In attendance at the summit were the Army's Criminal Investigations Division, Sid, and Bundy friend and chronicler Anne Rule. 
Each of the seven girls that had disappeared thus far, Divine, Healy, Manson, Rencourt, Parks, Ball and Hawkins, had vanished without a single clue having been left behind. There were no witnesses and no forensics evidence to tie anyone to any of the crime scenes. In some of the cases, it could not even be determined when or where the crime had occurred. All of that was about to change. On July 14th, just days after the crime conference concluded, Janice Ott and Denise Naslin both reportedly disappeared from a very crowded Lake Sammamish Park, in broad daylight, and in front of literally thousands of potential witnesses, including a sizable chunk of the Seattle police force, who were holding their annual picnic there that day. Ott, a probation officer whose father had sat on the Washington State Board of Prison Terms and Paroles, was the first of the two to disappear that day, apparently sometime around noon. No one saw her leave or get into a car with anyone, and it was never explained what happened to her bike, which disappeared along with her and which would not have fit into Bundy's Volkswagen. Naslin, a known drug user who was said to usually have a supply of downers on hand, but who nevertheless babysat for a good friend of Anne Rule, disappeared around 4.30 p.m. One witness saw a girl matching her description ride off from the park with a biker gang. She reportedly yelled, No, I can't. Let me off. Many years later, Naslin's mother wrote a brief note that was displayed at her daughter's memorial service, which read, God forgive them for what they have done. I love you, it has never been explained why she used that peculiar wording. A total of eight witnesses came forward claiming to have seen the elusive predator in the park that day. One of them had seen Janice Ott in the company of a man with sandy blonde hair around the time of her disappearance. The descriptions offered by the other witnesses varied. Only two of them were ever able to identify Bundy as the man they had seen, and then only after his image had been widely aired by the media, tainting the IDs. One thing that several of them agreed on was that the man had introduced himself as Ted, why the stealthy killer would choose to show his face before thousands of potential witnesses, and why he would do so using his real name, are questions that have never been answered. Why Ted Bundy does not appear in any of the hundreds of photographs that were shot at the park that day is another question that has never been answered. Following the Lake Sam disappearances, the task force tracking the Seattle killer was dubbed the Ted Squad. One of the very first Ted's reported to the newly christened task force was none other than Theodore Robert Bundy. His name was turned in by his friend Anne Rule, fresh from her attendance at the law enforcement summit. Ted would later also be reported by his fiancée, one of his college professors, and a former co-worker at one of the government agencies where he had worked. It was later determined that both girls had been strangled or bludgeoned to death, though that was a largely speculative conclusion. Only the girls' skulls and a few assorted bones were ever found, on September 7th. These remains were examined by, curiously enough, Dr. Darris Swindler. Though Rule's book pointedly claims that Darris was no relation to Herb Swindler, Misho acknowledges that he was in fact a distant relative of Herb Swindler. One key piece of evidence to emerge from the Lake Sam disappearances was a possible name for the suspect. He had identified himself to several witnesses as Ted, why the stealthy predator who had successfully abducted numerous women without leaving behind a single witness or forensics clue would suddenly operate in broad daylight using his real name was never explained. The task force became thereafter known as the Ted Squad. Among the very first Ted's to be reported to the squad was Theodore Robert Bundy, by his purported friend Anne Rule. Over the course of the investigation, four others would report Bundy as well, his fiancée, the pseudonymous Liz Kendall, a college professor, and a colleague at the Department of Emergency Services. The fact that only the skulls of the girls were ever found further fueled the belief of some that the killings were cult-related. 
Rule's book refers derisively to totally unsubstantiated rumors that the missing and murdered girls had been sacrificed and their headless bodies dumped, weighted, into the almost bottomless waters of Lake Washington. Chronicler Michaud, however, offered a different take. Occultism or Satan worship are creeds that local police say have long found a small but ardent following of practitioners around Seattle. He added that many people were convinced that a virulent offshoot of the Charles Manson family had moved to the Seattle area and had begun a new reign of terror led by Ted. Some on the Seattle police force were convinced that there was cult involvement in the murders. A hefty file on occult activities in the area had been assembled, cryptically referred to as File 1004. The occult theories though were ridiculed by county police and prosecutors. The skulls that were recovered from Taylor Mountain were examined, curiously enough, by a local forensics expert named Darius Swindler, who Anne Rule claimed was no relation to Herb Swindler, her friend and the head of the homicide squad. Misha, however, acknowledged that Darius and Herb were distant relatives. After the Lake Sam disappearances provided the task force with a name, no further disappearances in the area were linked to Ted Bundy. That is not to say that no more girls vanished from the area, but rather that Bundy was no longer living there. He had moved to Utah to attend law school at the University of Utah, where he worked, surprisingly enough, as a campus security guard. The first Utah victim credited to Ted was Nancy Wilcox, last seen on October 2, 1974. She was never seen again, alive or dead. Melissa Smith was the next to vanish, on October 18. Her intact, nude body was found strangled and bludgeoned. The body had been almost entirely drained of blood, and revealed a rather curious fact. Melissa had not been killed immediately, but had been kept alive for up to a week after her disappearance. Strangely though, her makeup was undisturbed, none of her nails were broken, and there were no signs of ligatures. If she was held against her will prior to her murder, there was absolutely no indication of that fact. If it was Ted Bundy who held her for that duration of time, then he most certainly had accomplices. Just the day after the girl's disappearance, Bundy left on a hunting trip with his fiancé's father. The slain girl was, perhaps significantly and perhaps not, the daughter of the police chief of Midvale, Utah. Melissa's disappearance was followed by that of Laura Amy, who vanished on Halloween night, 1974. Amy was also reportedly held for up to a week before her murder, and yet the hair on her strangled and bludgeoned corpse had been freshly shampooed just before or just after her death. Forensics tests revealed that she had been drunk at the time of her death. The local sheriff, Mac Holly, was sold on another suspect as Laura's killer, a man who was later convicted of the brutal sex slaying of his girlfriend. Holly once exasperatedly told a Ted Squad member, Bundy had nothing to do with our case, so forget him. That man didn't do our case. I wish you'd get that through your head. There were indications that Laura had some awareness that her life was in danger. Her mother reported that the girl had said to her a few weeks before her death, out of the blue, Mother, at my funeral I don't want to be buried in a dress. Her request was honored. The night of November 8, 1974 was purportedly a very busy one for Ted Bundy. He first allegedly attempted to abduct a girl by the name of Carol Durant from a shopping mall in Murray, Utah. Failing in that endeavor, he next struck in Bountiful, abducting Deborah Kent from outside the building where a school play was in progress. Kent's body was never found. The problem with this official version of events is that it would have been physically impossible for Ted Bundy, or anyone else, to have committed both of those crimes. First of all, the descriptions given by witnesses at the two crime scenes differed considerably. Durant described her attempted abductor as having slick back hair and the strong scent of alcohol on his breath. 
Reappearing at the school, the suspect was described as having long, brown, wavy hair and was said to be handsome and well-dressed and with no hint of alcohol on his breath. It is possible, of course, that Ted could have changed clothes, washed and restyled his hair and rid himself of the alcohol smell sometime between the commissions of the two crimes. He would have had to do so, however, while driving a Volkswagen at over 100 miles per hour over rain-soaked streets, since the two crime scenes were 26 miles apart and only 15 minutes elapsed between his departure from the Durange abduction site and his first sighting at the school. These times were recorded in police logs, so it was well known to the members of the TED squad that it would not have been possible for Bundy to essentially be in two places at once. Nevertheless, they pretended as though both crimes were the work of the elusive Ted, even after a drama teacher at the second crime scene positively identified a drug dealer who was the initial suspect in the Kent case. On December 12, 1974, another law enforcement summit was held, the Intermountain Crime Conference in Nevada. Exactly one month later, Ted allegedly struck again, this time moving his operations to the state of Colorado where, on January 12, Karen Campbell disappeared from a well-lit, heavily-traveled corridor at the Wildwood Inn. She had been seen just steps away from her room, where she reportedly was heading to pick up a magazine. No one at the inn saw or heard a thing, and there was no sign that there had been any struggle. Karen had reportedly argued with her fiancé on the day of her disappearance. Her badly bludgeoned body was later recovered. The next two alleged victims, Julie Cunningham and Denise Oliverson, who disappeared in March and April of 1975, were never found. After that, the disappearances strangely stopped, although it was another seven months before Ted Bundy was arrested. In the interim, Ted received a Mormon baptismal. The circumstances of Ted's arrest were, to say the least, rather bizarre. He was stopped by Sergeant Bob Hayward of the Utah Highway Patrol, who just happened to be the brother of Captain Pete Hayward, the chief homicide detective for the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office. The only crime Ted appears to have committed on the night of his arrest, by Bob Hayward's own account, was driving down a street that happened to take him by the officer's house. Nevertheless, Hayward felt compelled to call in backup for the stop, and he was soon joined by two additional UHP troopers and a Salt Lake County detective. Why this manpower was required to stop a motorist who had not even committed a traffic violation remains a mystery. A thorough search of Bundy's car was conducted, which was illegal without the consent of the owner since the officers, by their own admission, didn't have probable cause to suspect Ted of committing any crime. The officers claimed that the search was consensual, but Bundy maintained otherwise. And Ted would have been a fool to consent to the search, which no one connected to the case has ever accused him of being. Discovered in the trunk of Ted's vehicle were several provocative, though not illegal, items, including a pry bar, a ski mask, a stocking mask, an ice pick, and a pair of handcuffs. That last item was said to connect Ted to the attempted abduction of Carol Durange, which involved the use of handcuffs. The cuffs that were found in Ted's car, however, were from a different manufacturer than the pair recovered from Durange's wrist. At the very time that Ted was being taken into custody, yet another law enforcement summit was underway. Convened in Aspen, Colorado, the meeting was attended by detectives and prosecutors from California, Washington, Oregon, Utah, and Colorado. This conference was held behind closed doors and all attendees reportedly took a fraternal vow of secrecy. On November 20th, a week after the summit began, Ted was freed after posting a bond. Following his release, he reportedly thoroughly cleaned his VW, going so far as to take a garden hose to the inside of the vehicle. 
He also made some necessary repairs and then sold the car to a former classmate of victim Melissa Smith. Investigators later claimed that hair from three different victims managed to survive Ted's cleanup efforts. Bundy also moved out of his rooming house, which was under police surveillance. Oddly though, the room he vacated was never searched for evidence. Utah authorities had no real evidence linking Ted to any of his alleged crimes in that state, but they nevertheless proceeded to charge him with the attempted abduction of Carol Durange. The victim was unable to identify Bundy from an initial photo lineup, saying, I don't see anyone in there that resembles him. Investigator Jerry Thompson, after presenting the photos to Durange, wrote in his notes, she really just doesn't know, she had no problem, however, later picking Bundy out of a lineup. Ted was presented in a seven-man lineup alongside of six police detectives who were all a little older and a little heavier than Ted. Police detectives had, for unexplained reasons, rather hastily replaced the inmates who had originally been slated for the lineup. Not only did Durange pick Ted out of the lineup, but so too did two witnesses from the school where Debbie Kent had disappeared. Since it was, as previously noted, not possible for Ted to have been at both crime scenes, this lineup clearly had serious problems. It was alleged by some that Captain Hayward, the brother of the UHP officer who arrested Ted, heavily influenced Durange's identification. With Ted set to go to trial in the Durange case, a trial that would hinge almost entirely on the victim's rather shaky eyewitness testimony, Bundy's lawyer concocted a most remarkable strategy. At the last minute, he suggested waiving a jury trial and letting the presiding judge, Stuart Hansen Jr., decide the fate of the defendant. What Bundy's advocate, John O'Connell, didn't tell Ted was that all the principal officers of the court, O'Connell, Judge Hansen, and Prosecutor Dave Yoakum, had been buddies since their days together as classmates at the University of Utah. Ted Bundy was about to be railroaded, and it would not be for the last time. During the course of the trial, Judge Hansen regularly took it upon himself to question witnesses, which was roughly akin to a juror interjecting questions whenever he saw fit. The star witness for the prosecution, Carol Durange, delivered testimony that was riddled with discrepancies and inconsistencies. She was unable to decide if her would-be abductor had had a mustache or not. She told the court that his car had been white or tan, although she had initially told police that it was blue. She acknowledged on the stand that she had positively identified Bundy's car, even though by the time she did so the car had been altered and no longer looked as it would have on the night of the incident. Many veteran court watchers found her to be somewhat less than credible, as would have, it stands to reason, many jurors. But there were no jurors, and Judge Hansen saw no problem with Durant's testimony. He pronounced Bundy guilty as charged on March 1, 1976. Sentencing was initially set for March 22, but was then delayed so that Ted could be psychologically evaluated by a Dr. Al Carlisle. While Bundy awaited his sentencing, his visitation privileges were severely restricted. Interestingly enough though, Anne Rule had no problem at all being granted a special visit with Ted, even though she was not a relative, she was not on the list of approved visitors, and she showed up on a day that was not a regular visiting day. Any one of those factors alone should have disqualified her from visiting Bundy. Nevertheless, she was not only allowed to visit with the prisoner who was being held nearly incommunicado, but she was allowed to do so without even being searched before being allowed in. On June 30, 1976, Judge Hansen sentenced Bundy to a 1-15 to year prison term, leaving open the possibility that he could be paroled in as little as 18 months. Ted's legal troubles were just beginning, however, on October 22, a warrant was issued for his arrest by the state of Colorado for the murder of Karen Campbell. 
the state's case against Bundy was virtually non-existent, consisting of a hair purportedly found in his car, gas purchase receipts that placed him in the state of Colorado at the time of Campbell's disappearance, along with millions of other people, a Colorado ski country guidebook that was found in Ted's possession and on which someone, Bundy maintained that it wasn't him, had improbably marked an X next to the Wildwood Inn, an alleged eyewitness, and a prison informant. Also in October, Utah's notorious Gary Gilmore, immortalized in a disinformational Norman Mailer book and a made-for-TV movie, was convicted and sentenced to death. Gilmore immediately and improbably began campaigning to become the first man executed in the United States since 1962. He succeeded, earning himself an appearance before a Utah firing squad on January 19, 1977, and opening the doors to the resumption of state executions. Just over a week later, Bundy was taken to Aspen to stand before Judge George Lohr and answer to the charges filed against him in the Campbell case. It would not be the last time that a high-profile execution immediately preceded an important court appearance by Ted Bundy. Around the time that Bundy was awaiting trial in Colorado, a new woman entered his orbit, Carol Ann Boone, who had previously worked at a Vietnamese resettlement camp. She would later marry Ted and bear him a child. The judge and the prosecutor assigned to the Campbell case both reeked of corruption. Lore had just presided over the Claudine Longett trial, which he had wrapped up by sentencing Longett to an absurdly lax 30-day jail term for shooting and killing famed skier Spider Savage. District Attorney Frank Tucker had seriously compromised the prosecution by losing Longett's diary, reportedly crucial to the state's case, after opting to take it home. Tucker would later be convicted, not long after handling the Bundy case, of two counts of embezzlement, one count of felony theft, and two misdemeanor counts. He was given a 90-day delayed sentence, a $1,000 fine, and was disbarred, prompting him to change careers and enroll in a mortician school in, where else, San Francisco. Bundy, perhaps catching a whiff of the stench wafting over Aspen, resolved that he would defend himself. As the preliminary trial began in early April, the state's case began almost immediately to self-destruct. On April 4th, the alleged eyewitness took the stand and confidently identified the man she had seen, the Pitkin County undersheriff. Then the purported prison informant was quietly dropped, leaving the state without either of its witnesses. What was left were, some gas receipts, that proved only that Ted was in the state of Colorado, a tourist brochure, that proved only that Ted may have thought about taking a ski trip to Colorado, and a single hair that an FBI analyst claimed was, microscopically indistinguishable, from Karin Campbell's hair and that police claimed was recovered from Ted's car. The chances of gaining a conviction on that evidence in anything approaching a fair trial lay somewhere between slim and none. As it happened, there never was a trial. In a rather bizarre turn of events, Bundy opted not to stick around long enough to face trial. During a break in the preliminary proceedings, he purportedly escaped, after being conveniently left unguarded, by jumping out an open window and strolling down the street. Ted then quickly and improbably found his way to an empty cabin that happened to be stocked with food, clothing, a rifle, a flashlight, batteries, blankets and first aid supplies. He allegedly entered the cabin by prying loose the wire mesh that had been applied to the windows for security, though a caretaker later said that it would have taken superhuman strength to do so with bare hands, as Ted claimed to have done. Bundy did not remain free for long. He became lost and disoriented, causing him to fail in his quest to get away from the Aspen area and virtually guaranteeing his recapture. Once back in custody, Ted was assigned new counsel, jet-setting attorney Stephen, Buzzy, where... 
Ware was a flamboyant, larger-than-life character who regularly piloted himself around the country to handle major racketeering and narcotics cases. A few weeks after being assigned the Bundy case, Ware was in a coma. He reportedly crashed into a rock wall in another one of those freak motorcycle accidents. His wife was killed in the crash. Forced to again represent himself, Bundy filed for a much-needed change of venue in order to get the case out of Aspen. The motion was granted, but that was hardly a victory for Ted. The new venue was to be Colorado Springs. Statistically speaking, there was no worse place in the state of Colorado for an accused murderer to stand trial. With his trial set to begin on January 9, 1978, Ted again managed to escape from his captors. This time he allegedly climbed through a 12 inches square hole in the ceiling of his cell, which he had cut with a hacksaw, raising questions of where he obtained the saw and how he was able to noisily hack through the steel plate without anyone noticing. Once in the crawl space above his cell, he reportedly scurried over to the space above a deputy's empty apartment, lowered himself down into a closet, and then casually strolled out the door to freedom. A prison snitch is said to have repeatedly reported hearing Ted moving about in the crawlspace at night, but nothing was ever done. It seems very odd, however, that a jail would ever be constructed in such a way as to create a crawlspace. Once free, Bundy this time quickly located an MG midget that happened to be outfitted with a set of studded radial tires, a necessity for the snow-covered roads he would be facing, and also happened to have keys already in the ignition. This time, Ted wasted no time getting out of town. By the time his disappearance was discovered at noon the next day, he reportedly was already in Chicago. His commandeered vehicle did not get him far, it apparently broke down on the way to Vail. Luckily though, he was picked up by a helpful GI who gave him a ride. He then traveled by bus from Vail to Denver, and then by plane from Denver to Chicago. Once there, he stole a car and drove it to Atlanta. From there, he made his way to Tallahassee, Florida, acquiring a new identity along the way, Chris Hagen. That is how the official story reads, anyway. On January 15, 1978, a slaughter took place at the Chi Omega Sorority House on the campus of the University of Florida at Tallahassee. This crime did not bear even the slightest resemblance to any of the previous crimes attributed to Ted Bundy, but rather was reminiscent of the attack 12 years earlier that had been attributed to Richard Speck. Four girls were brutally bludgeoned in the early morning hours, two of them died from their injuries. A fifth girl was subsequently attacked at another location not far away. The first attack, at the Cayo house, purportedly occurred just after 3 a.m. and was over in just 15 minutes. In that brief period of time, a single assailant was allegedly able to go room to room, locating and viciously beating four women, in addition to raping and sodomizing two of them. One of the sorority sisters, Nita Neary, caught a brief glimpse of an intruder in the house as the man was leaving through the front door. She saw him only in profile, and described him as wearing a watch cap pulled down low over his face. His most noticeable feature, she said, was a large nose. Neary had just arrived home, at 3 a.m., from a campus kegger party, and was quite likely intoxicated to some degree, although the state claimed that its star witness had been quite sober on the night of the attack. Under hypnosis, she later said that the intruder closely resembled the sorority's houseboy, who looked nothing like Ted. Another sorority sister, Carol Johnston, was only asleep that night for a total of five minutes, from 3.14 a.m. until 3.19 a.m., when she was awakened by Neary and others. Nevertheless, she did not see or hear anything out of the ordinary that night. The first officers were on the scene by 3.23 a.m., just minutes after the dazed and bloodied victims staggered out of their rooms. 
These officers were quickly joined by a virtual army of city police, campus police, and county sheriff's deputies. The streets surrounding the house were soon brimming with squad cars, detectives' vehicles, ambulances, and a hearse. Nearly 40 distraught sorority sisters were milling about the house, many of them with blood dripping from their hands from their efforts to assist the victims. Joining the circus were an unspecified number of curiosity seekers, who were allowed to roam freely about the house. Needless to say, the crime scene was hopelessly compromised before any serious investigation could even begin. Key evidence was destroyed at the scene, and the evidence that was preserved tended to point away from Ted Bundy as the likely perpetrator. For example, semen found in the bed of Cheryl Thomas, the fifth victim, proved to be from a non-secretor, effectively ruling out Bundy as the donor. Chewing gum that was discovered in the hair of one victim, and that could have yielded both saliva and bite mark evidence, was destroyed. Saliva that would have likely been present around an alleged bite wound in the buttocks of another victim was swabbed away at the scene. The wound was allegedly photographed at the scene, but the photos that were later produced were not taken with the medical examiner's camera. That camera purportedly malfunctioned, so the photos were taken instead with a standard 35mm camera, allegedly supplied by a crime scene specialist. The section of skin that contained the incriminating marks was excised and placed in saline solution, unfortunately, it was destroyed it in the process. A sheriff's deputy on the scene prematurely ordered one victim's body, Margaret Bowman's, taken to the morgue before crime scene technicians had even ascertained whether any evidence was present on the corpse. And so it went at the Chi Omega house that fateful night. One rather curious fact about the crime scene that doesn't appear to have been commented on by any of Bundy's numerous chroniclers was observed by Ray Cruz, one of the first officers on the scene. Cruz later testified in court, and later repeated in interviews, that the body of victim Lisa Levy was cool to the touch upon its discovery. According to the official version of events, however, she had been dead for just minutes before her discovery, not long enough for her body to have noticeably cooled one other rather curious fact that proves once again that bizarre coincidences appear frequently in the stories of America's serial killers, was that Darius Swindler, the forensics expert from Seattle, just happened to be in Tallahassee on the night of the killings. Another largely forgotten fact indicated that there was at least a possibility that the victims had not been randomly targeted, a set of keys to Thomas's house, that likely were used by her killer, were discovered in her backyard. Not long after the bloody rampage in Tallahassee, 12-year-old Kimberly Leach disappeared from Lake City Junior High School in broad daylight amid heavy rush hour traffic. Her body was found two months later, completely drained of blood. The cause of death was listed as homicidal violence to the neck region. The day after her disappearance, coincidentally or otherwise, Ted Bundy's name was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. There was no indication at that time that Ted had anything to do with the Florida crimes, they certainly didn't match his supposed mo, and there was no reason to suspect that Bundy was anywhere near the state of Florida. Ted was arrested shortly thereafter, bearing yet another new name, Kenneth Misner. His last night of freedom was spent, oddly enough, in a wooded area of the Eglin Air Force Base, a restricted military facility. He had in his car at the time an array of credit and identification cards, as well as several photos of girls and young women. After allegedly sending word that he wanted to talk without counsel, Ted was interrogated in Pensacola without an attorney present, and the conversation was taped. His public defenders later loudly complained that they had been refused entry to the interrogation room. 
The resultant tapes were filled with gaps, allegedly due to the tape recorder unerringly malfunctioning whenever Ted purportedly made incriminating statements. None of these supposedly confessional statements were recorded, but detectives swore that Ted had in fact made them. There were some interesting bits of conversation that were recorded, including this exchange. Police interrogator, where'd you get the money that you used after your escape to travel across the country from? Ted, well, man, there's other people. Other people are in on it. Quote dot. The next day, Bundy was handcuffed and brought to the courtroom under heavy guard, with his attorneys still complaining that they had not yet been allowed to see their client in jail. Following his appearance, Ted was taken away with what chronicler Richard Larson described as a strange, aloof look in his eyes. Bundy walked right past Larson, who was a friend of his, without any hint of recognition. The nighttime interrogations of Bundy continued for a week, first in Pensacola and then in Tallahassee. In the first week of March, Ted was brought to appear before Judge John Rutt, and on April 27, Rutt issued a warrant authorizing Bundy's captors to take dental impressions of their prisoner, by force if necessary. Curiously, prosecutors had waited for over two months before taking steps to obtain this allegedly key piece of evidence. In July, a grand jury was convened to hear secret testimony pertaining to the disappearance of Kimberly Leach. On the 21st, an indictment was handed down, which a judge immediately ordered sealed. The next week, another grand jury was convened to hear evidence in the Chi Omega case. In December 1978, Judge Rudd was ordered by the Florida Supreme Court to disqualify himself from hearing the case due to his having shown an obvious bias against the defendant. Rudd was replaced by Judge Edward Coward, a former Navy man and police officer. On May 31, 1979, Ted was scheduled to appear before Coward to accept the terms of a plea agreement that would have handily disposed of both the cases in which indictments had been handed down. In exchange for entering three guilty pleas to the three counts of first-degree murder, Ted was to receive three consecutive 25-year prison sentences. This would have been a great deal for Bundy, if he was in fact guilty of the crimes he was charged with, and if the state had a solid case against him to prove that fact. However, there is scant evidence to suggest that that was the case. To ensure that Bundy stuck to the script and entered the guilty pleas, the state of Florida executed John Spankling just six days before Ted's scheduled court appearance. The message sent to Bundy could not have been any clearer, take the deal or you too will have an appointment with Florida's old Sparky. To further drive that point home, Ted was brought to appear in the very same courtroom where Spankling had been condemned to die, with many of the same actors in attendance. For a time, Bundy was even represented by Spankling's attorney, Brian Hayes. Spankling was, curiously enough, only the second man executed in this country since 1962, the first being, of course, the aforementioned Gary Gilmore. Before his electrocution, Spankling was asked if he had any final statement, to which he replied, I can't talk. The chin strap is too tight. That was the only statement he was allowed to make. Ted was not intimidated, he refused the deal. On June 25, 1979, the Chi Omega trial began in Miami, Florida. It was the very first trial in U.S. history to be nationally televised. By June 30th, final jury selections had already been made. Sitting on that jury, according to at least two of Bundy's chroniclers, was a man named Vernon Swindler, whom Michaud noted had been to a murder trial before, his cousins. 
For those who may have lost count, that brings to three the number of people named Swindler who played a part in the investigation and prosecution of Ted Bundy, Herb Swindler, the head of the Homicide Division, Darius Swindler, the forensics expert who examined the alleged victim's remains, and Vernon Swindler, the juror. Nothing unusual about that, I suppose, nor in the fact that Ted's defense team included a jury expert who was actually an Atlanta hypnotist named Emil Spillman. The case presented by the state was, to put it politely, problematic. A stocking mask was produced that was purportedly found at the Thomas residence and which was said to be identical to the one found in Ted's car during the illegal Utah search, though one has to wonder how different one stocking mask could be from another. The mask from the Florida crime scene was said to have yielded two hairs from the head of Ted Bundy. Interestingly though, the only eyewitness that night, Nita Neary, testified that the man she saw was not wearing any such mask. Of the 260 different fingerprints found in the Chi Omega house by detectives, not one of them matched those of Ted Bundy, even though Neary also said that the intruder she saw was not wearing any gloves. In court, Nita Neary positively identified Bundy, as she reportedly had done from a photo lineup, though she had wavered in that identification when she had first seen Ted in person. And, as previously noted, she had said under hypnosis that the intruder more closely resembled the sorority's houseboy. She had also said that he had a very prominent nose, a feature that Ted was clearly lacking. The notorious bite mark evidence was presented to the jury, even though the actual bite wound had been destroyed and the photos purportedly taken of the wound had been shot with a camera other than that of the medical examiner, hopelessly compromising the evidence chain. The bite wound evidence was presented by a man named Dr. Richard Suvorin, who had published his supposed findings before the trial even began, thereby contaminating the jury pool. In explaining the techniques that he had used to come to his conclusions, the doctor may well have inadvertently revealed exactly where the photos of the victim's bite wound came from. I took models from the castings of Bundy's teeth and I went to the morgue and I pressed the models into the buttocks area on different individuals and photographed them. The good doctor took the castings of Bundy's teeth and used them to bite the buttocks of corpses and then photographed those bite wounds with a 35mm camera, but those were, of course, different 35mm bite wound photos than the ones that were allegedly taken of the actual bite wound victim, although those photos were also taken with a 35mm camera, rather than with the Mies camera, and it couldn't actually be proven that there ever was an actual bite wound victim, since the purported physical evidence of the wound itself had been destroyed. Bob Campbell, a Fort Lauderdale police officer who followed the trial, was skeptical of both the bite mark testimony and of Neary's dubious identification of Bundy, despite the fact that he had a vested interest in seeing Bundy convicted, given that it was his sister that Ted had been on trial for killing prior to his escape in Colorado. Dr. Dwayne Dever was skeptical as well. Even if we take a leap of faith and assume that the photos of the bite wounds were legitimate, Dever testified that the tooth pattern visible in the photos was a very common one, and the material of skin is flexible, elastic, and not at all a good medium from which to compare bite marks. Bundy himself cast further doubt on the evidence when he attempted to introduce photographs demonstrating that one of his teeth had been chipped after the attack at the Chi Omega house. To prove that point, Ted requested a delay in the trial to subpoena all the negatives of photographs taken of him by the media. If Bundy's bite pattern had in fact changed after his arrest, then proving that would have conclusively proven that the bite wound evidence had been fabricated using castings of Ted's teeth. The judge disallowed the motion and no photographic evidence was ever reviewed by the court. This was certainly not the only ruling to go against Bundy. It was clear from the time of the opening defense statement that the court was heavily biased in favor of the prosecution. 
The defense's statement, which ordinarily would not be expected to draw objections, ran for just 26 minutes and was interrupted with an astounding 29 objections, 23 of which were sustained. When all was said and done, the jury deliberated for just six hours before finding Bundy guilty on all counts. Following the penalty phase of the trial, the jurors required just an additional hour and 40 minutes to deliver two death sentences. Ted was sent to Death Row's Q Wing, otherwise known as the Bug Wing, where he took up residence in John Spankling's recently abandoned cell. In January 1980, he was back in court to again face murder charges, this time for the death of Kimberly Leach. There was virtually no chance of him receiving a fair trial, his name recognition in Orange County, where he was being tried, was said to be at 98%. Only the comatose were unaware of the notorious Ted Bundy. The state used that fact to their full advantage, brazenly stacking the jury with those who had prior knowledge of the case. As Ted accurately noted, the state's case is predicated on knowledge outside this courtroom. Even Ann Rule acknowledged that the prospective jurors appeared willing to say almost anything so that they might be chosen. Ted's defense counsel this time around was a man named Vic Africano, who candidly described Bundy as a split personality. Court watchers noted that Bundy seemed to have undergone a radical transformation from his previous trial, during which he had represented himself quite lucidly and animatedly. He now seemed distant, aloof, out of touch with his surroundings. It would later be revealed that Carol Boone kept him supplied with a steady flow of drugs and alcohol throughout the latter proceedings. There were ostensibly three eyewitnesses to the leech abduction, but there were serious questions about all of them. The first was a 73-year-old crossing guard who remembered the day of the abduction as having been a warm, summery day, when in fact it had been a rain-drenched morning on which the temperature had been near freezing. According to Chronicler Michaud, during a deposition this witness had told the attorney that he knew he'd picked the right man because an FBI agent winked at him when he picked the right picture in a photo lineup. His testimony was deemed inadmissible, as was that of the second eyewitness, who had been unable to identify Ted for nearly two years before suddenly developing the ability to do so. The third witness, C.L. Andy Anderson, had waited for weeks before belatedly reporting his version of the abduction to police. Anderson happened to work at the local fire station, which was, conveniently enough, located in the same building as the Lake City Police Department. Anderson's version of the incident was seriously lacking in credibility. He claimed that Bundy, ever the careful criminal, had improbably left his van parked in the street, blocking the only westbound traffic lane, during the morning rush hour, while he leisurely prowled about the school looking for a suitable victim. In order to, enhance, his memory of that day, Anderson had reportedly been hypnotized. Another witness, a sporting goods dealer, claimed in court that he had sold Bundy a knife shortly before the crime was committed, but there was no evidence that a knife had been used in the commission of the crime, and the witness had initially identified another man in a photo lineup. The most compelling element of the state's case, on the surface anyway, was the purported fiber evidence. Fibers from a van that Ted had allegedly stolen and used for a period of 10 days were reportedly recovered from Leach's purse, bra, jersey, and socks. Conversely, fibers from her denim purse and jeans were said to have been found in the van. The problem was that there was no evidence to suggest that Ted had ever stolen, used, or been anywhere near that van. None of Ted's or Leach's hair was ever found in the van, even though 100 hair samples were recovered from the vehicle, clearly demonstrating that no effort had been made to cleanse the van of evidence. Similarly, dozens of latent fingerprints were found in the van, but none of them belonged to Ted. Obviously, no effort had been made to wipe the van down, which was not consistent with Bundy's other alleged actions.
For instance, it was claimed that Ted's Florida apartment had been so thoroughly cleaned before his departure that not a single fingerprint could be found anywhere. Another problem with the fiber evidence is the notion that a fiber from a pair of denim jeans, a mass-produced commodity, can be matched to a particular pair of jeans. There is absolutely nothing unique about any particular pair of blue jeans that would allow an analyst to ascertain that it was the garment that yielded an individual fiber to the exclusion of all other pairs of jeans. These are not, in other words, fingerprints we are talking about here, these are textiles that are produced in enormous lots. The same is largely true of carpet fibers, including those from the van, which are also a mass-produced commodity. The best that can be ascertained is that a fiber came from a particular make of automobile, not from any specific vehicle. Claims to the contrary fly in the face of any sort of logic. The best that the state could do to connect Bundy to the van was through the testimony of Detective James Parmenter of Jacksonville. Prior to the Leach abduction, his kids had purportedly had an encounter with the van and its driver. Parmenter later arranged for his kids to be hypnotized, out of which allegedly came a positive ID of Bundy as the driver. Bundy was thus ever so tenuously linked to the van, through the manipulated testimony of the two young children of a police detective, and not through any physical evidence whatsoever, and the van was then tenuously linked to Kimberly Leach, though only through dubious fiber evidence. None of this really mattered, however, as Bundy's guilt was a foregone conclusion for the people of the state of Florida. It took the jury only 45 minutes to deliver yet another death sentence on February 9th, the second anniversary of Leach's disappearance, a fact that surely was not lost on the jurors. Following the verdict, Ted was sent to occupy a cell right next to that of our old friend Otis Toole. Throughout the 1980s, long after Ted Bundy had mover on, women continued to vanish in and around the Seattle area, as many as 100 of them by some counts. Most of them were prostitutes, many of them underage. These killings were attributed to the so-called Green River Killer, who has never been caught though recent reports claim that police now have a suspect who will be prosecuted. In the summer of 1985, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, VICAP, was launched at the FBI's headquarters in Quantico, Virginia. Ted Bundy was said to be the prototype on which the system was based. This system, despite the lofty goals implied by the name, has little to do with the apprehension of violent criminals and everything to do with the wholesale erosion of civil rights in this country, using the fear of a manufactured phenomenon, serial killers, to sell repressive measures to the American people. One of the biggest promoters of the system, who did everything but go door to door to assist the FBI in its efforts to justify its implementation, was Anne Rule. The very same Anne Rule consented to be a witness for the prosecution during Bundy's so-called competency trials, which were an effort on Ted's part to persuade the courts to set his sentences aside and grant him new trials in the Florida cases. In her book The Stranger Beside Me, Rule, a former Chi Omega sorority sister, justifies the selling out of her purported friend by saying, there would be a very real threat that Ted could work his way back through all his legal thickets. In other words, if Bundy's verdicts had been set aside, and if new trials had been ordered, there would have been a very real possibility that his previous trials would have been revealed as the judicial shams that they were. The truth of the matter was, as Stephen Michaud wrote, in the dozens of cases from Seattle to Florida in which the police have sought to implicate Bundy there has not been a single bit of physical evidence that incontrovertibly demonstrates his involvement in anything more sinister than car theft. Michaud attributes this to Bundy being some sort of criminal mastermind, a genius who was smart enough to always cover his tracks. In truth, there was never any evidence to suggest that Bundy was a genius. He was no doubt an intelligent man, 
but there is nothing in his academic records or in his IQ test scores to indicate that he rose to the level of a genius. In April 1987, the Associated Press reported that the incarcerated Bundy had been corresponding with attempted presidential assassin John Hinckley Jr., who was in turn corresponding with Manson Disciplecombe attempted presidential assassin Lynette Squeaky, from Birds of a Feather. On August 1, 1987, Llamas on the Occult Calendar, Judge Coward died of a massive heart attack while lying in a private hospital room that he had checked into for observation. He had no prior history of illness. Ted Bundy, calmed by tranquilizers, was put to death by the state of Florida on January 24, 1989. In his final hours, he allegedly confessed on tape to an array of murders, including some in the state of Idaho that he had never been accused of. Many of the details given in these confessions were either wrong or unverifiable, and the tape is difficult to hear, due purportedly to yet another tape recorder malfunction. One type of evidence that would have proven tremendously damaging to Bundy had it been introduced at any of his trials was Polaroid photographs of the murders. According to some officials, such photos did exist, taken by Ted himself. As with so many other cases though, such evidence was never produced. Why? Perhaps because those photographs would show actors other than, or in addition to, Theodore Robert Bundy. Chapter 15, The Next Generation like you have a job, I have a job, he has a job. His job is killing people. That's what he was trained to do. Cynthia Hayden, a juror in the Richard Ramirez trial, commenting on the convicted Night Stalker. Henry Lee Lucas's reign of terror ended a mere nine months before another series of violent, serial killings began in March 1984 in part of Henry's old stomping ground, the state of Florida. By the time it was over, ten people had met with gruesome, untimely deaths, allegedly at the hands of Bobby Joe Long. Though rarely mentioned in press accounts of the killings, Bobby Joe Long was a cousin of Henry Lee Lucas. Just over two years after John Wayne Gacy was indicted for the murder of 33 young men in Chicago, a new wave of serial killings began in the Windy City. A year and a half later, 17 young women had allegedly fallen victim to the Ripper crew, led by Robin Gecht. Seventeen years after the arrest of the Rippers, and just days before the scheduled execution of one member of the crew, a son of the crew's charismatic leader was arrested along with three accomplices and charged with homicide as well. Though the connection was almost entirely ignored by the media, Robin Gecht had been one of the young male employees of John Wayne Gacy. Angelo Buono was still awaiting trial for the Hillside Strangler murders when girls once again began turning up dead on the streets of the San Fernando Valley. These killings were eventually attributed to a man named Douglas Clark and an accomplice named, bizarrely enough, Carol Bundy, though this was not the same woman who acquired that very same name after marrying Ted Bundy. Like Buono, Clark owned an auto upholstery business, located just a short drive from Angelo's shop. Also like Buono, Clark claimed to have used his business as a front for a prostitution ring. On at least one occasion, Clark had visited Buono's shop to purchase supplies. The first victims of the Clark and Bundy team, who were dubbed the Sunset Strip Killers, were dumped along the same lonely stretch of Forest Lawn Drive where the body of strangler victim Yolanda Washington had earlier been discovered, as well as the body of Laura Collins before her. 